And I said, sorry, guys, you're going to have to stop. You have to stop. He's he's lost his pubic hair. You got a nice setup. Yeah, got the got the curtains. They arrived yesterday and just finished putting them up about twenty minutes ago. Did you um, do that welding thing you were telling me about? You were going to make some some soldered up connections or something. Total horse shit. Doesn't work. No. <laughs> Total crap. I can use them as animation armature wire, but uh, that's about it. Well, I have my. Um, I'm using the uh, the webcam I'm using to speak to you. Uh, is my original old webcam. I, I bought this new webcam, which looks great. It, it's fine. It's just I bought this other one thinking it would be really good to have crisper images for you know classes and things and i'll be doing a lot of zoom meetings and things and uh yeah, yeah it, it wasn't better <laughs> it has all these sort of manual settings but it was constantly clicking trying to focus and the image quality was terrible so i just i sent it back and uh i'm happy with my yeah. eight year old fucking uh older one so that's fine so yeah mine's uh this logitech that i'm that i have is it's at least 10 years old yeah and it works fine so yeah. There we go. Lesson learned. What do you do? Um, yeah. So uh, this episode, we've got quite a hefty one. It's a, a, our guest chat this time around is with Daniel Parker, who who is amazing. Oh my God, what a career! Yes, very, very good. Very, and, very good. and a legacy too. Is his dad Charles was also a makeup artist. Yeah, we get into some of that. I mean, he was uh, he was nominated uh, for the for the uh, stuff on Frankenstein, nominated for an Oscar on Frankenstein. He has won Emmys and BAFTAs and things. One of my one of my very favorite makeups is is his makeup on, on De Niro. And it's pretty extensive. I mean, I want to revisit that. I absolutely love that makeup. Yeah, I'd love to revisit that because um, there were some interesting things. There was a lot of innovation and stuff involved in that. I wasn't aware of at the, you know, at the time. I, I worked there the year after, I think, um, on Mary Riley. So there was still a bunch of stuff um, from Frankenstein kicking around. And one of the things I remember seeing was um, a load of uh, foam heads that had been hair punched. It must have been about 20 foam heads, full head wow. makeups on cores around the workshop. They'd all been hair punched, the whole head, because they hair punched it and shaved it back. And they were just the unused ones, which gives you an idea of how much stuff was in there. But more recently, um, Chernobyl and The Queen's Gambit. I don't know if you've seen that mm -hmm. yet, but... Uh, a fantastic show really nice stuff and uh, uh yeah real mixed stuff and i you know like i say i always knew him as a rubber guy that made you know prosthetics and that's how i was introduced to him and obviously he does all this other stuff so it was a very interesting chat for me so we'll get stuck into that oh i'll show you something i was doing this week i'll be making some little heads you know, ah, nice with, with a, their little crack allure paint on it yeah uh so that sweet. was fun so i've been playing around with that stuff with the crackle glaze and just ink stuff just art stuff that i can pick up and put down in between bits and bobs and i spent some time. i've been printing out i've been printing out tiny heads of myself <laughs> i saw something do gummies is yeah. that right <laughs> yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna make some gummies out of them. can you ship Todd some of gummies sure why not excellent i'm drinking some um woodman reserve here so Ooh, that looks it's yummy very nice very really nice nice bourbon so i'm just having a sip of that Mm. Not that it's been a particularly tough day, but um, you can probably hear in the background, I've got my printer running. 
um, and I have been soundproofing, not that you can hear it now because you just got the printer and the fan going, but I've, I've put some sound panels up uh, in the corner where the podcast setup is. The curtains, as you can see behind me, are not behind me because yeah. they're being taken up because they were a little bit too long, so dragging on the floor. So I'm slowly working on, yeah, mine, on mine are improving a, the sound here. A few inch, or a, a few inches long, too, that I just got up. I may, may hem them also. Yeah, I think it's quite nice when that happens. Then you, when you draw the curtains, they don't drag on the floor and take. Well, they get stuck under the chair. That's the other thing. Anyway, all that's boring. Let's talk about rubber <laughs> stuff. Um, so we had a really cool email from Diane Fisher, and she emailed uh, yesterday. I tried a new cake recipe. Stay with me. The photos of the cake looked amazing in the book, and the instructions seemed straightforward. Halfway through mixing, a little voice in my head, and we all have this voice. What are you doing? This is not right. Why do you just blindly follow that instruction, <laughs> even though it goes against everything you know and ignore the inner voice that continued? The result was, well, a disaster. It was inedible. Even the dog wouldn't touch it. So my question to you guys is, what do you do when you hear that voice? Do you carry on, even though you're using expensive stuff and take precious time to create, hoping you're about to learn something new and awesome? Or do you just cut your losses and start again, even though you're not 100% sure what would have happened? Uh, and then say to yourself, like me, I kind of knew that wasn't going to work. Your inner voice is almost never wrong. Inter yes. Interestingly, <laughs> that, that little voice is almost never wrong. And it's amazing how many times we just ignore it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, how, well the thing is that voice. It's, it's a recipe in a book. I must be doing something else wrong. Yeah, I mean, the voice in the head, you've got to... It's a weird one because it, although it's 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 pointing out potential failures, the 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 problem is, you you end up catastrophizing it in your own head as this sort of insurmountable thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, basically, what you're saying is you made a cake and it went wrong. So does that mean that you should never make cakes, or does that mean that cakes cannot be made, or does that mean that only people that make really nice cakes should make cakes? So you know, people who make nice cakes, did they make Every cake they've ever made has been delicious. Well, I have, have heard stories fail? of people who have great recipes and have made their fabulous cake or souffle or whatever it is for other people. And I say, oh, man, this is the most amazing thing I've ever tasted. Can I have the recipe? And they do something intentionally to fuck up the recipe before they <laughs> give it to their friends so nobody can recreate their killer recipe. So it's entirely possible that the book could have been mistaken. Somebody could have written something wrong in the book. And she, though she followed the directions according to the recipe, the recipe yeah. could have been wrong. It's It's been known to happen. Possibly. But I think the the point she's making is more of a, rather than the uh, the author's evil, uh, it's probably more the case of like, you know, when you know that things go wrong. I th it's a question of what kind of voice it is that's listening. Because I will always have a voice that is slightly doubting. Yeah, well, as long as it's not but a I voice telling you to 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 slaughter your next door neighbors and bury them in the backyard. <laughs> well, unless they can come with a very, very convincing argument, which if I was to run by a third party, they agreed with it, then maybe there's something in it. It's weird how those voices never like give you the cure for cancer or something. No. You know? They always whisper nasty shit instead. Well, here's the thing. I'm, I think the thing is you get better at knowing when things are slightly off. So it's not a surprise. You sort of see it. So it's more like you're drifting off course rather than you find yourself at the wrong destination. But the other thing is with things like cakes, they're not expensive things to get wrong typically. So I would say when your cake goes wrong, it's the kind of thing where if you were to take that 
awful cake to someone that made really good cakes, they could tell you specifically what you've done wrong. Mm -hmm. And they could actually put a name on it and you could actually specify where you went wrong. So it's not so much that you shouldn't make mistakes, it's that you should actively seek a very specific reason why something went wrong because it'll be either we've said this before it's either something you have done that you shouldn't have done or you should have done something that you didn't do it's one of those two and so your job really is to drill down and find out exactly what it is that you did sure well experience is a great teacher full. it is but it's, it's a case of like when what she's basically saying is like look when when, when if you know something's if, if you screw something up with expensive materials then it's expensive and and yes it is and that has happened um uh but the thing is you start to recognize certain things like with silicone you become very disciplined at weighing out mixing and making sure that it's done correctly so that your part is done right sure. having said that you will get material failure i have had in the past resin that was sent to me and it was two parts a and one of them was mislabeled as b mm. Um, you know, that Oops. happened once. Um, so, you know, that, that wasn't my fault, but my, my job should have been to take a small amount of A and a small amount of B, mix them together and confirm that it does cure before I commit that mixture sure. to a sculpt. And if I screw up the sculpt, because I checked on them, well, that's kind of on me, but there is a fault in there. So there, there are elements that you're not in control of, but what you are in control of is your response to it. So I think that in answer to your question, what you need to do really is, is to be very specific about what went wrong. I know we're talking about cakes, but foam regardless whether it's a cake, a I think foam or latex is a perfect example of the kind of you know experiential uh, process that eventually you know the more you run foam, the more you kind of get a a feel for it and can sense when it's time to stop the run, even though you're following a, a specific run schedule, you can yeah. you can tell when when it's ready to. To put the gel in yes you know without yes without following the schedule you get a you get a sense of of what's right and how to how to work with it the more you do it the more it becomes sort of innate yeah i think you're right it's a case of doing it enough times that you develop that sort of sixth sense almost of things and foam yeah. is like you say a very good analogy because it's lots of ingredients it's also why it's a very important thing to have to have a dedicated notebook for doing notes. Every time you run a batch, you want to, you know, make a note of the room temperature, the humidity, um, what batch you're running, you know, how long, you know, everything. So that if it does, if it goes wrong, if it starts to gel while you're pouring it into the mold, you know, okay, I'm going to have to troubleshoot backwards and figure out where mm. this went wrong. Mm. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's always something, it's always something quantifiable. That's the truth. That's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's, and if you can't quantify it, then you don't know enough about it yet. So you should do more of it. Because I think, like you say, when you make yep. mistakes enough, you develop a sense of where you're going wrong. So basically, you should just make more cakes and screw them up again, but screw them up in a different way and just keep doing it. And you'll gradually learn what you're doing wrong. And send them to us. And send them to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will take even crappy cake at the moment. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I think that's the way is, 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 yeah, you've got to go for it. I mean, the thing is with expensive materials, you don't want to do something big, but this is why one of our mantras is do something small, but do it well and then scale up gradually. So, you know, you may not mm -hmm. be able to afford silicon to recover an entire body and make a bodysuit. Don't just make a nose tip because if you can't make a great nose tip, you already found out what your limitations are and the amount of materials you're going to need for a, 
a latex nose tip or a latex chin or a latex pair of ears is minimal. And if you can't make that look good, don't fucking buy silicon. Don't spend a bunch of money on stuff. Just plaster latex, you know, just just do that yep. and then scale up. So I think, yeah, keep baby steps. Baby steps. Absolutely. But that's a, that was an awesome question. I love the fact that start with cupcakes and then and then work. Yeah. Oh man, cupcakes are making me hungry. I've been so good these last couple of weeks. Over Christmas, I've been refraining from eating too much of anything. I feel quite good. Um, but now I want more food. Um, there was um, on the 911, Neil Gorton's Makeup Effects 911 Facebook group. That's the one thing I miss about not being on face, uh, Facebook anymore is, yeah. is the 911. There's an awful lot of shit just generally on Facebook. So. I think an aggregate, if something interesting turns up, I'll just send you a screen grab of something cool. Um, and I appreciate that. But uh, yeah, this was uh, by Chris Payne. I hope he doesn't mind me reading this out, but this was really interesting. Chris is a great guy. I, I just sent him a set of my my uh, foam latex chimpanzee. Oh, cool. Makeup to play, to play with. That was nice. We should link that into the, um, the episode because uh, let me put that on the show notes. Todd's chimp. That's going to sound weird. Pogo, <laughs> my my homage to the Umbrella Academy. So good. Oh, talking of what? Not Thanks. talking of which. That was a lot of fun. Um, third season of um, Cobra Kai. <laughs> I watched one episode. <laughs> not the same thing. I've seen. I, I I have seen part of one episode from season yeah. one, and I'm I'm curious about it because I kind of get the sense that the the rival it's. It's flipped from the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the plot thickens. The, the Daniel the son is kind of a dick. Yes, there is that element too. But it's brilliant. It's really good. It's really good. It's, it's cheesy to, as fuck. Well. I, I hope that wasn't a spoiler. No, no, it's cheesy. I mean, the thing is, but I, it's, it, 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 it's perfect. Well, yeah, it's it's a karate movie, karate series. It's got to be cheap. It is, but it's 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 the Karate Kid. I mean, it's perfect. It knows itself very well. It doesn't take itself seriously. It's really good. It's re I love it. Absolutely. I'll have to check it out. Is it Netflix? Uh, it is Netflix. Yes. Cool. All right. Um, I'm in. I know what I'm doing tonight. Uh, so Chris Payne uh, has has mentioned a very interesting question. He said, "I've never made encapsulated Bondo prosthetics." but I'm hearing about them more and more lately. I'm a little unclear as to why they're used. If you're going to encapsulate anyway, what's the advantage of using Bondo instead of silicone? So uh, it's an interesting point. So I, I, I responded that I can't imagine why you'd encapsulate because I think what we've got to be clear about here is encapsulation and covering one surface is not necessarily the same thing. Because to me, encapsulation mm -hmm. means it's encapsulated back and front. And that is an important distinction to make rather than right. laying in a surface. Because I have mm -hmm. in the past, I've had Bondo, and by Bondo, I mean like Prose transfers, you know, the Prose, thickened, thickened thickened Prose, Prose yeah. or PTM, something like that. Um, I have had that, even though silicon shouldn't really stick to Prose, I've had pieces not come out of molds. So in sheer sort of, uh, determination to make sure they do come out. I actually have coated the inside of the mold with green marble, a coat of green marble sealer, then put my prosade in, then do the freeze drying and all that kind of stuff. And then when I apply... Matthew Mungle does does it with, and he, he uses his soft sealer, which is amazing. a fabulous... It's, yeah, It's amazing. It's, amazing. it's so so stretchy and, and soft. Well, I have to talk more about that because actually that, that motor run in my head about something. But, um yeah, because what 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 Matthew does is he doesn't freeze the freeze the, the freeze them, 
um, the way most people do so that, you know, which when you freeze the prosade, it polymerizes mm -hmm. the adhesive and turns it to plastic. Matthew just lets them air dry. Right. So they're really soft, but it, you know, air drying takes a significant amount of time. Yes, it does. Even, even in a, in a dehydrator. Yeah. 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 And that, that, that can go wrong in the dehydrator as well, because you get ice crystals forming in the freezer if they're frozen too quickly, mm -hmm. or there's too much water in the mix, and then you end up with these weird fishes in it. Anyway, um, uh, I said, I can't imagine why, you, you'd have to allow the water to evaporate first. May as well apply a sealer once applied, which we do, which is standard practice to avoid tackiness uh, catching on everything. So obviously, if you've got a big piece of prosade on the skin, if you're filming in a dusty environment, or they've got dark sort of fibers on the, on the costume or something, that can all stick to it. So it's often you will seal it. So Chris Payne's replied that, yeah. that that's my line of thinking too, but I'm seeing people do encapsulated Bondo, so there has to be some kind of benefit. I'm just not understanding what it is. Uh, per Kappa has uh, commented, I think they only have a layer on the front, which is what I was saying about encapsulation, mm -hmm. for even painting surface when used in conjunction with regular encapsulated pieces. Um, and I think it's turned out, I think Lawrence Collato pointed out that Ken Calhoun did a video on the Stan Winston School of Character Arts where they did, I think the video was Encapsulated Prosthetics Part 2 Demolding Application and Beauty Makeup. Uh, and he, I think it's Ken Calhoun that did this and that's why people have seen the video and it's coming up as a question. I haven't seen it, but that sounds um, why they're doing it. Uh, so Lawrence Collato said that in the direct applied version, a sealer, either baldies or green marble or final seal, is brushed or sprayed on uh, to a transparent mold um, and PTM or Prondo is then spatulated in afterwards, which is what I said you might do. Right. Um, the other thing is obviously you could also do it afterwards by putting a sealer on the outside. Um, mm -hmm. But the pros of the latter is that prosthetic is self-sticking. It's easier to place than using water slide paper. And then uh, Diego Avolio has mentioned another advantage in the demolded version is that you can color before you apply it, which is an interesting point because uh, obviously this is the thing with pros, uh, pro or bondo transfers. I don't know if there's like a kind of, I see it a lot done where the prosade transfer is put into the mold and then left to dry in the mold. Mm -hmm. And then that way you apply it directly from the mold. Whereas obviously the other way of doing it is to freeze it with the acetate, peel the mold off. So then the surface of the appliance is then exposed to the air. Then that is allowed to dry. Uh, which gives you then the mold available to be refilled. So you could, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of work in, in both. Methods. There are, but I wondered if it's more common to transfer it to a transfer paper in the States than it is the UK. I don't know if that's true or not, because I haven't seen many people over here do it onto the paper. I've seen more people do it into molds. And I don't know if that's because the paper's harder to get here or whether it's because it's more expensive or if it's just you know you copy what you see so if somebody's doing it then someone has a certain way of doing it and then so that just becomes the sort of received wisdom mm -hmm. i don't know but uh, yeah there are there are a number of ways of doing it um howard berger even did a did a video for stan winston where this is he was uh where he wasn't yeah where he wasn't using using the the water slide paper he was actually using pieces of silk mm, that's right which is going to be much, much easier to get coordinate around the face. To get around curved surfaces. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. Um, yeah. I haven't done a huge amount of pro bondo. I mean, I've done pro bondo pieces, but I, I tend to do more silicon because that's what I will get called in to do. So I, I will mm -hmm. make pieces or molds for other people to run themselves because the most of the people that do the pro bondo stuff, they seem to be 
makeup artists who do a little bit of prosthetics so it's easier to apply from a you know from a mold or from a piece of paper rather than you know a full-on application so i just um, recently bought a couple of gallons of of prosade that i'm uh fixing to i was thinking about starting it this afternoon oh, wow. um put in and put in one of my mixers and on a slow speed that's one of one of my dedicated mixers for for doing this uh and just start whipping up a new batch of of uh thickened prosade yeah. Because if you put it in a mixer on a slow speed and just let it let it do its thing, let the water evaporate naturally, yeah. then you then you don't have a shrinkage problem, and you don't have to put a filler in it, which is going to make it stiffer. Yes. Yeah. And there are a lot of advantages of doing it that yeah, way. Yeah, that's an important distinction because I hear people saying, "Oh, can I just dump a load of cavacil in?" It's like, yeah, it does make it thicker, but like you say, the good in a pinch. If you're in a hurry, that's you know that's that's the way it does but 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 if if the thickness is achieved by evaporation of moisture that's a better material than one that's been thickened by virtue of adding something to it because like you said it's like because because the absence of water means that what's in that mixture a doesn't evaporate as much because most of it's already evaporated but b you're not adding something that would stiffen it like you said like you know because that's what what cabasil will do but it's a it's an attractive option because it's easier so and it may look fine in a still picture but it's when the skin moves and the bono doesn't yeah. that it becomes a problem yeah it's it's the cabasil and the, and the prosade is fine if you're if you're just fixing some some edges and you're trying to blend one piece into another mm-hmm. but if you're doing a whole appliance out of it it's going to be likely going to be problematic because it's not as soft as it would have been without the filler yeah. so the cat plastic thing could work i suppose in as much as it means the surface of the piece comes out with uh you know a seal on the outside already but honestly if mm-hmm. you're applying it from the mold it doesn't really matter because you can just put seal. you could stipple some sealer over the top once it's applied anyway yeah but then what but you had mentioned also and i've had this happen to me too that sometimes the bondo doesn't want to come out of the silicone mm. In a friendly Particularly way. Particularly, it's a fresh mold. If you're in a hurry, so, you like pulled yeah. it that day. So doing, so doing a sealer first into the negative before you put the bondo in, and then let mm. it dry. It's going to give you a, a better shot at getting it all out of the mold. But the see the sealer I would put in is a sacrificial <clears throat> layer. Like I, I put in uh, green marble into the mold. Usually, green marble concentrate so that it's more sealer mm-hmm. than the, you know the thin stuff. Um, and then let that dry and then I run my piece and then freeze it and then I flex the mold off and then, or I apply it, you know, once it's dried. But the point is in the, in the removal of once it's stuck on the skin and I peel the mold off, invariably the sealer that I put in there has done its job to stop the, uh, Bondo sticking to the silicon, but it tends to flake and damage, but it doesn't mm-hmm. matter because I just wipe it off with IPA, 99% alcohol, and then I just reapply another layer. So to me. I don't mind doing that and I get a really nice blend because the other thing I, I worry about with cat plastic on a piece is that when you apply it from a mold, depending how sort of soft the skin is, you, you, you put pressure on the skin. It sort of stretches the skin. It pushes it out. Uh, the act of yep. pressing the mold on firmly could displace the skin. And then when you remove the mold, it will kind of shrink back. And you may end up with like a, a perimeter of, of puckered skin that can't retract, yeah, nice. like stretch and stipple effect. So that would be one thing that would worry me. But to add another layer of complication is I guess you could 
uh, add a plasticizer to your cat plastic, which is, I think, a subject of an entire podcast on its own. Because I want <laughs> yeah. to drill deep in that. Yeah. Um, because I don't have yeah. any plasticizers. I know you can put phthalates in it. I was chatting to Connor about this recently. Phthalates or non phthalates, yeah. Well, I don't know. Do we have that? Here? It's one of those things that most people don't have and don't know about, but in the States, you guys seem to have it. Yeah. And, and, and the, it's, yeah, we could do a whole podcast on just on that. I, I actually have a section in my book about phthalates. So, yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll get stuck into that. I think we'll do a little primer on it and then we'll get stuck in onto that but yeah. anyway <laughs> but i think i think what you're talking about with you know the pushing it into the skin it's it's a good good reason why you would want to, if, if you've never done it before do a practice piece first to see what's going to happen so that you're not doing it for the first time on set yeah. when it really counts and you're flop sweating yeah because 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 it's fucked up and you that's the only piece you had you know for, god forbid you know it's the only piece you had but you know you don't want to be doing it for the first time when it really counts. No. And the other thing, see, with direct apply from a mold, I mean, typically I'm quite a champion of, of stiffer silicons when running silicon pieces in a flat mold because then they don't compress when you scrape them. Or they, they compress less, so you don't mm -hmm. displace too much silicon in the scraping. But with Pro Bondo or, or you know, PTM transfer pieces, you kind of want a softer silicon so you can actually bend it around corners because otherwise the stiffness of the mold could interfere with the application. It's a tricky one. Because depending on where you put it, like if you've got to go under the eye, if the mold extends beyond the edge, which it will, is that going to mm. dig into the eyelid, you know? So, yeah. uh, or does it push down and, and sit on top of an eyelash? And you then know? your mold's got to also, if you're going right up under the eye, your mold's got to be, got to be pretty thin. Yeah, exactly. And depending on, yeah, but how thick is your sculpt? Because you've got a sculpt that's five or six mil thick, your mold's going to have to be at least sort of seven millimeters thick. Right. So it, it, it's not a one, it's kind of like your soldering thing. <laughs> something, something, <laughs> something, because it doesn't crop up much is uh, in England, we, we pronounce the L. So it's solder. But whenever here in the States, it's solder, which makes me laugh because it sounds like sodomized. But there we go. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, um, like to sod off. But, uh, but it's kind of like, yeah, the, it's the same thing. It's like that soldering stuff. It's like, it sounds great, but actually, there, there are so many people doing pro bono transfers because they're easy it doesn't necessarily no one tells you about the shit that goes wrong with it too that they're not they're not the one size fits all flawless mm -hmm. oh if i do problem i don't avoid all of the problems of application there's just different kinds of problems um, not the least of which is it takes a week to dry <laughs> so um which if you haven't got 10 molds ready to go is is, is a consideration so i don't know so let's get to our guest chat interview with makeup and hair designer daniel parker enjoy this one you've had whether you like it or not you've had a very positive influence on the way i do things well i like it because i like what you do so i'm very pleased i have a positive influence i think that's very cool thank you well, there's a couple of things i remember very distinctly one was the first time i'd ever really seen anyone stick anything on uh was the richard the third makeup that you did on ian mckellen and we did a test weirdly it was in the workshop as well it wasn't in like a makeup room hidden away it was actually in the workshop I guess this is before his Magneto days and his Gandalf days. So he was perhaps not as entourage as perhaps he would be nowadays. I, I don't think, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I haven't worked with Ian for years, but but I can't imagine he would have an entourage. He's not an entourage kind of person. I, I'd be very sorry. No, he's not. No, he's very feet on the ground, actually. But it yeah, was just. He he's a very nice man. Um, he was extremely nice to me on that job, I have to say. 
he was absolutely lovely. I, I think that was the first time I'd worked with him. Um, right. Richard Longcrane directing it. Was, I mean, it was Richard's, Richard the Third, and it was Ian's idea to do Richard the Third like this, and then he got Richard right. Longcrane to direct it. Um, but I, I mean, the script's fantastic, of course, because it's Shakespeare. You, you can't go mm. wrong. But then how Ian placed it in the 1930s, like almost like a, in Nazi Germany, it was absolutely brilliant. And so... Oh, so that was his influence, was it? Oh, yeah. This to is make it Ian, way. Oh, right. This is Ian McKellen's version. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, right. His idea. And he got on board this great director, Richard Longtrain, who's just a lovely man. A uh, bit of an unsung hero. He's done a lot of great stuff and has never really got major credit for his work and he's very clever i mean he also was the first director on band of brothers and he kind of like set the pace there i mean clever chap but yeah the the makeup i did on ian um for that was was well still is one of my all-time favorite makeups um because what i did is i took the character and i literally split his face down down the center and did one side evil and one side, the good guy. And the evil side, what I did is I took back his hairline a bit. I slightly kind of grayed one of his eyebrows, gave him a contact lens with a very small pupil in it to make the eye evil, you know, which is an old animation trick. And then I dropped the, this side of, that side of the face. So I dropped it and I put, a, I put a piece of, basically actually a chunk of rubber behind his ear to push his ear out. Um, um, so I basically just distorted that side of the face, um, yeah, and and the lip, and then I did internal dent dental work as well, which back in those days I did that all myself. I mean, I did all the dental work myself. Uh, we didn't have Chris Lyons and Fangs and people like that about then, and and so we did it, um, right, and it and it was, uh, yeah, I, I think it worked really well. I mean, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I, the other interesting thing about it is, um, you saw it in the workshop, didn't you? You saw. I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw you apply. Yeah. Well, two days or a day, but I think it was actually the day before going off shooting in Derbyshire. I decided I actually didn't like it. So what you saw in the workshop isn't what actually ended up on the screen, and <laughs> just before leaving, I actually re-sculpted the whole thing. Um, right. That's madness. But I guess it needed to be done. And you knew, I mean, nobody said anything. It's just how you felt about it. It's how I felt about it. I didn't like it. I saw the rushes for the test and I, I didn't like it. Yeah. I mean, there was something wrong with it. I think it was just a little bit too, too much, not subtle enough. And, um, and so I re-sculpted the whole thing. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell Ian. I didn't tell the director. I didn't tell anybody. Um, and then it came to doing it on the first morning up in Derbyshire. And it's just kind of like, well, that's how this works. And I did tell Ian, he said, just go for it. I'm sure it'll be great. And um, yeah. we went for it. And I, I don't actually think anybody noticed. Um, but it, <laughs> was, it, it was definitely a big difference. Um, yeah. And it was, a good, it was a good call. It was one of my good calls. Oh, fantastic. And I remember the, the pieces being run. I think the molds were a material called Formite, which was like a gray resin filled epoxy or i think it was an epoxy so i remember it took a long time to cure i don't know if it was an epoxy or if it was a urethane but i remember them being big solid gray 
block molds, but they were small pieces. I can't remember. Was that before Frankenstein or after Frankenstein? It was after Frankenstein because I didn't start work there until yeah. which was the year after Frankenstein had come out. And yeah. uh, there were the format and the pieces are run in a material called dermplast, which you don't really see nowadays, which was like a gelatine type material. Yeah, not, not my favorite material. I think gelatine is a better material, but I don't, I'm not even sure dermplast even exists anymore. But yeah, the molds were for Right. Um, and they it was very good material. It was a material that Nick Williams, who was my partner at Animated Extras, Nick, Nick Williams and Pauline Fowler, they were both my partners, but, but Nick being more of a mechanical guy, this is a, a, a serious mold making material. It's basically a, an aluminium filled epoxy resin. Mm-hmm. A harder shit doesn't distort. And it, it's absolutely fantastic. And you can put clamps on it like and squeeze it to hell and gone. And so your edges come mm-hmm. out absolutely amazing. I these days we have different ways of doing edging and different ways of you know we're dealing with different materials altogether, so we're not squeezing down molds in quite the same way. But back yeah. then you had to squeeze them to, to hell and gone. Um I think that's the case because the thing about something like a gelatine based material is it cools, so you need to clamp it quite fiercely to overcome the natural thickening that would occur as it cools down and becomes stiffer. Whereas silicon remains liquid until it cures, so you don't have to put it under quite so much pressure. But we weren't using silicon for pieces then. But also, with silicon, of course, you're encapsulating it, and, um, and your encapsulation material actually creates your edge then uh, mm. melts away. But, but with gelatine, or dermplast, you, you're not encapsulating it at all. So you actually have to create your own edge. It's a, mm. it's slightly different. Um, and so it's still, you know, gelatine still has a place, I think. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I like it. I think it's a great material. But like you say, it's the right material for the job rather than just having a one-size-fits-all approach yeah, to things. Yeah, I, I still make pieces out of cat plastic, believe it or not. It depends mm. what you want them to do. It also depends where you are. You know, if you're stuck out in the middle of the jungle or the desert, and you've got a bottle of cap, yeah. you better know how to use it. You know, some of the old methods are really very, very cool. I've done it with just pure slip latex in the middle of the desert in Jordan for the, uh, the Hurt Locker. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, there I was out in the middle of where well, it wasn't quite the desert, but could have been. It was in Amman. And all I had was latex and, and a bag of plaster from the local builders. And I made pieces. And make it work. Yeah, they, worked, <laughs> they worked great. Actually, they worked really well. But yeah, that, that Richard the Third makeup was something that really informed how I saw things. And I think I was quite lucky to see that at all, but early to see it so early on because it put in my mind about uh, a good makeup being a, a series of, of, of good choices and trying to add as little as possible, but making the right decisions rather than smothering the face in rubber, which is something I see happen a lot, particularly in makeup schools and stuff where people are eager to inflict themselves and show their skills on something. Do you know what I mean? And that desire to kind of do a lot gets in the way of good design, I think. So that was a nice thing for me to see where you'd let the actor do what they do. And especially in that performance, you know, he really makes that makeup work. It doesn't need that much because he can supply a lot. So there's a, a symbiotic and it's a really wanky way thing to say, but it's a symbiotic relationship between the makeup design and the performance and the performer. Well, it's not, it's not wanky at all. It is symbiotic. It, the, the two have to work together. Um, I regard myself, some people laugh at me when I say this, as a, but I regard myself as like a prop man to the face mm-hmm. and to the body. I'm there to help. I'm there <laughs> to create, to create um, a tool that the actors can work with. 
And when you get yeah. like Ian, he'll work it. Um, it's like when I worked with Albert Finney on a, on a Gathering Storm when he played Churchill. You know, he, he absolutely, the, the very, very simple makeup. And what you say is completely true. I mean, I'm the great believer in less is more and do only what you have to do to achieve what you want. And because what you're doing by that is you're giving a great actor a tool, you're not giving them an encumbrance. So, yeah. so they can work with that and they do their job. I do my job and hopefully the two will mix beautifully. And I have to say with Ian, it's great. With other actors, there's other, lots of other actors, amazing actors that love makeup and love the choices that I make because I give them the opportunity to do their job as well. Uh, and this combination, symbiotic combination, is is great. Um, I mean, Albert Finney on a Gathering Storm. I mean, at the end of it, he he got well. I got a BAFTA, and he got a BAFTA. I got BAFTA for best makeup, and he got BAFTA for best actor. And I phoned him up and I said, "Thank you, know, basically, well done on your BAFTA. Congratulations, and thank you for mine." Because what I did to him wasn't that much, but he made it work. What I gave him, he made it work so amazingly well. That it looked right. What did you do to him? Basically, I mean, Albert had a, I mean, unfortunately he's dead now. He was an extremely nice man. Um, uh, and a clever, clever actor, but he, um, he had an enormous amount of hair, um, and these big, thick, bushy eyebrows and stuff. And, I actually suggested that he shave his head. Everybody said, no, 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 you can't ask him to do that. So I just said, Albert, are you happy to shave your head? Um, yeah. And he said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. I was quite surprised. And uh, so he shaved his head. I then, this beautiful, lovely, thinning wig had made for him. Then, of course, I had to cover up his own hair. You can shave someone's hair, but you've still got all the blue coming through from the hair under the skin, the roots under the skin. Yep. So I then had to cover it well. Give him a few liver spots. And then the only other thing I re oh, bleached his eyebrows, because of course Churchill was quite blonde. So the wig was blonde, and blonde gray. And then I, uh, the only other thing I really did was, was actually put some red lipstick on his lower lip to push his lower lip out. Uh, and it wasn't kind of like bright red, you know, it wasn't weird, but it worked really, really well. I mean, it did work well. It's incredibly simple, just tiny little bits, um, you know, nice paintwork, and it, it worked very well. I say that's the the, the 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 thing about makeup design is it's knowing what to add and what to not add, or you know what to take away, what to add, but knowing what where your boundaries are and what what can be the performance rather than just assaulting the face with as much rubber as you can because that's your thing, or, or as much hair as you do because that's your thing. And it's like no, it's knowing which toys to bring out and what to keep back. And I guess leave as little unaffected as possible. It's, it's making the right choices rather than lots of choices. I mean, yeah, it is. But a lot of this is also down to casting. I always put pressure on directors and producers to cast correctly. Mm. And also a lot of the time they will go actually for the capability of performance and not necessarily the fact that they've got the right hair or the right beard or the right nose. And so yeah. that's where our work comes in as well. But the nearer, obviously, that you can be to what is actually scripted, the better. And so the less that you do, the better, less being more again. I, there are times when the characters demand that you do what you have to do. I mean, there was an outrageous film I did called Cloud Atlas. Everybody was made up. 
I mean, and because you had Tom Hanks playing six different characters, and the same with Halle Berry and Hugo Weaving, they were all playing six different characters so that, that had to look different. And sometimes yeah. people would say, well, where is Tom Hanks? Um, and funny enough, there was a makeup I did on Tom Hanks where I actually gave him a bald cap with a very closely cropped hair, so it was a punched bald cap. I gave him this little beard and this broken nose. And we were on set, and uh, the first AD actually it was after lunch. Said, "Right, everybody, the extras, everybody, back, back to where you were, and those that were around Tom Hanks, please make sure that you're in the right place." And one extra turn, I said, "Sorry, Tom Hanks was here, and absolutely, <laughs> and I'd done very little to Tom, very, very little, and you don't have to do that much. You really don't have to do that much in order to change somebody. But then again, you're also talking Tom Hanks, who's a yeah. hell of a chameleon." He's one of the great, again, and, and one of the great actors, and, and he's such a comedian. He can disappear in a crowd. I've seen him do it in public. It's absolutely extraordinary. You think everybody wow. knows him, and he, he just puts on a pair of glasses and a, and a hat, and all you do is hear the voice. Wow. Yeah. That is one of the privileges of, of doing makeup, is you get to see good actors do their thing, and you go, wow, it really is like it's not something everyone can do. I mean, it's to genuinely change the way you hold yourself and – and, and the little mannerisms you don't even know you have that you can alter and stuff. It's quite a, quite a skill. So yeah, a heady combination with makeup. That's the art. I mean, as far as well, part of the art of, of being an actor is to get into a character. And if that character needs mm. a twitch or you've got a slight stoop or you've got a slight limp or whatever it is, you know, a breathing problem, whatever it is, it, it, that's part of the job. They're, but not all actors do that. I mean, I've come across actors who've actually literally said to me, no, I expect the makeup to do everything. It was kind of like, well, okay. <laughs> Cheerio. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> that word you used earlier, symbiotic, and you said it was a, was a crappy word or whatever. It's not crappy. It's a good word because it is. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, you're just uh, trying to do it all. And the other makeup I remember, or one of the makeups I remember, you did a show called The Horseman on the Roof, which is around the same time as Richard III, I think. And you did this really cool, it was a, a makeup to make a, a guy look dead, and his mouth was held open with a dental appliance, and he had like glazed eyes. I don't know if you remember that makeup, but it was one of those very subtle kind of things, which was really effective. And I was like, how the hell? The mouth was kind of like held at an angle because of rigor mortis or whatever. And you were like, ah. and you wouldn't tell me at first how you'd done it. And I was like, oh, yeah. You wanted me to, to figure funny out. bring up that film. I mean, I was brought in, especially a French film called Le Housard sur le Toit. Um, the Horseman on the Roof is how it translates to English, which is very unexciting. The Hussar on the Roof would have been better. But, but anyhow, Cavalry Man on the Roof. But yeah, that was with Olivier Martinez and Gerard Depardieu, Juliette Binoche, the lovely, glorious Juliette Binoche. Fabulous cast, uh, but it was about it's a, oh, a French novel, a massive French novel, it's a massive French story, and about and it was a time of cholera in France, and all these people were dying of cholera, and somebody went and did a test and painted everybody bright blue, which is actually what happens when you die of cholera. You actually do go blue, but you can't always do what's real because if you do, it looks can look ridiculous, uh, and in that case, it mm-hmm. did look ridiculous. And so I got this phone call saying. Monsieur, aidez, s'il vous plaît, immediately. You know, we need help now, please. And so I went over there and I did a test where I painted everybody kind of like this great blue sort of look. I did my research. At the time, actually, uh, Jeremy Woodhead, who is now a wonderful designer in his own right, was actually my assistant. Mm-hmm. 
best assistants I ever had. Fabulously, brilliantly clever guy. So we went over to France and painted all these people not blue, uh, but gave them a hue. And when you die of cholera, also, you you kind of, yeah, everything distorts and it just stays rigid dying. And so what I did was I wired up the inside of this guy's mouth again, you know, knowing about dental work, it was quite simple, really. Did prosthetics on him, you know, because he had to sink in his cheeks and stuff like that. And so, again, it was actually the dreaded dermaplast. And I say the dreaded dermaplast because we were working in the south of France. Dermaplast and heat do not work. And this stuff just fucking shrank all the time. And you ended up with this white, this well, actually this line around the prosthetics all the time. But then, yeah, at that time, it was kind of like that was the stuff, the, the new stuff to use, and I was using it. But that was, I think, the last time I used it. And then what I did is I gave him slightly clouded, exactly, I gave him clouded contact lenses just to kind of like take the life out of his eyes, which is a very good trick. I use it for old aging with arcuses and you know, which is the ring. And I use it all the time, actually, contact lenses I love, because, again, it's one of those things that you really don't have to do much it's subliminal. It's another good word, symbiotic and subliminal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I love subliminal. I, I love the fact that you can do something and people look at it and go, I know you've done something, but what is it? And that that's that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's all, that's movies. It's all, it's all a trick. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it is amazing to me that, um, that, 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 those subtle things work so well and i think it's it, it it's one thing i would call to the attention of people who are learning makeup is to is to sort of learn the craft of it well enough that you you don't feel like you have to do everything you can kind of like the, the analogy i use is like if someone's just learned a bunch of chords in a guitar if you just play all of the chords to show that you know them that in itself is not a good song do you know what I mean? it's not a good melody the, the the what makes it a good melody is the right notes in the right order you don't have to show everything all the time and i think sometimes makeups can suffer from that where someone's very pleased with what they know and so they push all of that or as much of it as they can and it kind of gets in the way it doesn't actually enhance the performance necessarily it's more about what they can do rather than what is required yeah i guess that's why i'm a crap musician um <laughs> <laughs> same <laughs> well, i can't play it all so <laughs> yeah i tried to play it all i tried to um partially deaf so not not a good thing to do but but yeah no you're right i mean it's it it's it's picking and choosing it's again it's being clever it's just being clever seeing what you've got and and utilizing what you've got taking the face as your palette the face the head the body yeah it's your palette and and using that to 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 create a character i think is clever i think Yes, of course, people want to be seen. If they're if they're students and or they're starting off, they want to be seen. And I, I mean, I see a lot of these on Instagram and stuff. I see a lot of these alien creature horror blah blahs, and they're great. I mean, you know, the big wobbly monster thing is great. I mean, I, I, I absolutely love it. It's not it's not my cup of tea to do, uh, and it's mm. not that I haven't done it. I've done it, uh, hence I know it's not my cup of tea to do. I mean, what I much prefer to do is I much prefer to do real stuff. And I, and I love glamour, you know. I mean, I, I love doing – I'm a painter, you know. I'm a, I'm a painter and sculptor, and, but the kind of stuff that I do is real. And and I love colour as well. I mean, we're, we deal, you know, highlight, colour, shade, 
form. Yes, it's about modifying the form of the face, isn't it? Using color, because that was one of the other things that I got from you was the was to not run to using rubber too early, like do as much as you can with color, because that's quite an underutilized technique. I think if somebody yeah. knows about prosthetics, they they can use them too readily. Yeah. And not, not try and look at alternative ways of doing things. Sorry to interrupt, but but what it is is it, the colours definitely is the shading and the highlighting that will get you as far as you can without prosthetics. The colours massively important as well. And I I use a broad broad palette. You would be I mean, makeup artists that watch me work are amazed at the colours that I use because they are colors that they would never think about using. I can't even begin to tell you how many times that they said, I would never think about using that color. That is amazing. I said, well, try and experiment a bit, you know, try and do a bit. Also have a look at Van Gogh's work, have a look at artists' work, and actually have a close look and see what colors they use. And these are the colors of skin, but you stand back from it, you know, you see it close, and it's kind of like this mishmash of extraordinary colors. And you stand back from it, and it all makes sense. Makeup's the same, mm. and it's amazing what you can do with with broad strokes. I mean, really broad strokes. And the sculpting's the same; it should be broad strokes. Uh, I have a terrible habit of getting too tight with my work, and I've over the years loosened up. And the looser my work gets, the better it gets. And you still got to be tight on some things. There's no doubt about it. But um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I it's kind of like I'm, I'm broad strokes. At least knowing when to stop as well. That's it. Done. Boom. Mm, that I walk away. My, my own you know, portraiture, doing portraits and stuff, and paintings. Can I talk to you a little bit about your influences and how you started out? I know your father was a was a, a well known makeup artist at the time, Charles Parker, and he did like you know, Ben Hur and Lawrence of Arabia and you know some some really big hitter movies. Can you talk a little bit about how? that must have affected you and influenced you to some degree, if I'm assuming it influenced you? Yeah, no, no, it absolutely did influence me. First of all, my father, he, I mean, he was a brilliant artist anyhow. He Back in the 1930s, he got a full scholarship from Canada. He, was amazing. Uh, he got a full scholarship from Canada to the Royal Academy in London because he, I mean, the, the guy was really brilliant, I mean, quite brilliant. But he was also, he was my best friend. He, he was an extraordinary man incredibly talented he was also incredibly kind but a big i mean big mad party animal too people loved him um because he he also knew how to enjoy life but unfortunately i mean well, he was when i was a child i was pretty much always by his side whenever i could be we spent a lot of time together we we, we had a great relationship i mean the, the only influence i'd say that he had on me one apart from teaching me how to be a human being, which I think he did more than any other person in my early life. He gave me this beautiful makeup box, and it was a proper, proper old-fashioned makeup box. It wasn't a cheap piece of rubbish makeup box. It was actually beautiful with this lovely handle on the top and sections inside it, and with beards inside it, and morticians wax, blood, spirit gum, some Max Factor pan sticks. And it was kind of, that was it. And then he. He showed me quickly how to do a cut with mortician's wax, which is, oh, man, this is so good. This is fantastic. And yeah, it was what, I mean, I couldn't have been eight, something like that, eight years old, maximum. Wow, that's pretty early. Yeah. <laughs> eight or nine. I mean, no, definitely no more than nine. And I'd go trundling back to school and, and start sticking beards on my friends and giving them cuts and wounds. 
and and so I've just always done it. I mean, I've done it since I was a kid. And then I would do the school plays. I do the makeup of the school plays. I we we talked before. I mean, there was one school play that I was in. Uh, and it was Midsummer's Night's Dream, and I actually had to painfully play a fairy. We soon talked. <laughs> the way to get out of that was do the makeup. You know, I didn't want to stroke. Right. I didn't want to stroke Puck's head as a fairy in Midsummer's Night. So yeah, <laughs> so I've kind of I've always done it, but then I was never encouraged to go into movies or or into makeup, particularly not makeup. Really, he said he wasn't pushing you that way. He wasn't saying, "Oh, I want you to do what I do," kind of thing. No, on the contrary, he didn't want me to do it at all. Right. He, uh, he, he. In his day, it was he reckoned. I mean, well, he was a dead end job. There was there was no future. He got to the top of the pile, as you said. I mean, he did Lawrence of Arabia. He did Ben Hur, Quo Vadis. He did all these amazing films. Um, and you know, in, in within Europe, he he was the number one man. This side of the pond, he was uh, he was the man. Mm. And so. Uh, he realized that there was no, you know, he, he wanted to go further. He'd done it and he maybe wanted to do a bit of directing or something like that. And in those days, it was impossible. You couldn't move. I mean, I've, I've been very lucky. I've done a bit of directing commercials and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've done other things with my life. But back then, you, you, you couldn't. It was also the studio system. It was a four-wall system. And you were employed by the company, by the MGM or whoever. And that's where you stayed. You stayed within the four walls. Uh, there were no right, yeah. So you've got no latitude to kind of deviate or make other connections and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. And then he, as I understand, it, he died when you were quite young, still like sixteen or something. You weren't very old when he passed away. Yeah, yeah. It was a terrible, terrible moment of my life. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely awful. But um, yeah, he did. He did. And so I never learned from him, but I also did. I profited very much from from the fact that he was very much loved. And I decided, having been thrown out of public school, public boarding school, I absolutely hated it. I hated boarding school so much. And so getting thrown out was actually fantastic. Most people would have been ashamed of themselves. Me, I was very happy. (laughs) You were like, thank God for that. (laughs) So I then turned around to my parents. I said, I said, look, I'd like to go into movies. I don't need any qualifications. I had none because I was too busy smoking behind the bicycle sheds or whatever. And uh, uh, so, you know, can I go into the film industry? And they, they, they basically said to me, well, actually, really, actually more my mother, because my father was dead by then. But, uh, look, as long as you don't do makeup, that's fine. You know, <laughs> production, become an editor, become a producer, we can't do anything but not makeup. That's yeah. They're not allowed to do that. And so I started to write to people to try and get a job in production. And I wrote to a man called Peter Beale, who actually was the, the runner, the gopher on Lawrence of Arabia. Right. And, uh, he was by this time, by the time I came to the industry, he was head of uh, head of 20th Century Fox production. And I went, he said, come on up. And he basically said, you know, your father was so kind to me when I was nothing. Uh, it would be such a pleasure to give you a job. And so he gave me my first job. This mailroom production runner. But because your dad had paid it forward and, and, and done something nice, yeah, well, I, I, which presumably wouldn't have benefited him. He just did it because it was a nice thing to do, and yeah. he remembered it. Yeah, and my, my dad was really pretty good to people. And in days when it was very, very hard in the industry and people weren't necessarily so nice. So uh, several times I've actually profited from 
from my father's niceness uh, you know, to people. It's been, it's been good. But I have to say, for a long time, I was the son of Charles Parker. I wasn't Daniel Parker. Mm. Uh, right. Being the son of somebody famous basically means, well, you're in the business because of nepotism. Uh, it probably means you're useless. You're here because you're useless, but you know people or your father knew people. So it takes a very right. long time. So they give you a fire under your belly kind of thing you, you, well, spur you on. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to prove that you can do it. And I, I mean, one day somebody said, oh, this is Daniel Parker. Um, and by the way, his father was Charles Parker. I don't have to remember. And that, that opposed to being, this is the son of Charles Parker. And, right. and I have to say, yeah, kind of like a great day uh, because my father was still included mm -hmm. that I came first, which was very nice mm -hmm. because it meant that I'd grown up within the industry as far as other people saw me, which was very nice. Yeah, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so what, how did you start doing makeup then? So you're, you're doing your production running stuff and then eventually you started sticking makeup on people. Yeah, I mean... So what was your first job? The thing is I always loved it and, and I, I was production runner... Spielberg's gopher his junior PA whatever I mean it was a different system there were different kind of titles but but um on Raiders of the Lost Ark which was fantastic I mean oh wow great film. that's very cool <laughs> and with this this young director who was doing pretty well uh who had a an arcade machine in his office that I used to go and play um yeah, it was a great opportunity, but I was in production, not makeup, because my parents yeah. didn't want me to do yeah. makeup. And I, I on Raiders of the Lost Ark, there was a wonderful makeup artist called Tom Smith, and I should say this, say this story because it's, it's actually backing up what I said about my father, which is a, maybe a good thing. But he, yeah, and uh, Tom was head of makeup on it. He was had his little workshop, and I walked in there. And I, I ended up spending a lot of time with Tom, probably too much time. It showed how much I loved makeup. But I, first time I met him, I walked in there and he was working on some stuff, sculpting some stuff. And I said, I'm, I'm Daniel Parker, Charles Parker's son. And he just dropped everything, ran over, picked me up and hugged me and told me this amazing story wow. about about you know, the fact that he was always late for work. And thanks to my father, me and my father one day said, look, Tom, if you're ever late again, you're sacked. You were definitely, definitely sacked. But here's some money. Buy yourself a motorbike. Just don't be late again. And that was it. And Tom was never late again. Wow. Yeah. And Tom loved Carrot and Stick. <laughs> well, I love that. That's it. fair. It said a lot about my father. It said a lot about Tom never forgot it. Uh, Tom. Yeah. And nobody forgot it. And Tom was lovely to me. And the thing, one of the things about Tom is I was talking about broad strokes with color and stuff. Tom did broad strokes with color and stuff. Everything was brave. He gave me a lesson on laying on hair. And the thing is, it's taking chunks of hair. It's not over-mixing hair. He, he just showed me once. That was it. So, so Tom used broad strokes. He used it with paint, the way he did makeup. I mean, he had this makeup box that was a mess. Very little makeup in it. But there was everything from makeup brushes to sculpting tools. Dusty bits of dried up old clay and stuff like that. Uh, but he was a wonderful makeup artist, but he had very, very little in his makeup box. And I think one of the things that I learned from him that I still do to this day is, for instance, mm -hmm. I carry around the big double Cryoland palette because it's not what you're using, it's how you use it. And that's a great palette. I mean, it's an absolutely fantastic palette. 
doesn't make any difference. It's how you use it. Everybody's after products. He says, oh, have you seen this product? Have you seen that product? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, there's some good stuff there. Certainly there's some good stuff. But don't dismiss the fact that you may be, you're an artist. Paint, paint. And Tom was a painter. But it, that, that's what's fascinating. That's why I love watching people work because you get to see them making the decisions which become the finished makeup. Whereas when you see the finished makeup, you're kind of, you're not privy to the work that went into it. And it's like, it's things like that you say, with, they may start out quite bold, quite brazen, and then it gets blended down and mixed and, and, and feathered and, and it ends up as a product. But it's really delicious to see those decisions being made and how people work. And you're, oh, you know, some people are quite like that and other people are quite... I don't know. There's just different ways of working. Well, the thing, if somebody says you you can't do this, then that's all the more reason for me to do it. <laughs> so there's a certain precocious kind of uh, belligerence to it in a way that maybe you have. I, it's just don't set yourself any rules. Hmm. Don't don't just because somebody says you can't do it doesn't mean it can't be done. Yeah, I think it's not me being arrogant; it's them being ignorant. Yes. Well, I guess the thing is you would try and do it. And if it doesn't work, you go, no, it doesn't work because I tried it rather than I don't think it work, will work. So therefore I won't try. It's that it's the, it's the addition of labor in there. In so much of my work, I've broken the rules. I did it with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I did it with Chernobyl. I've done it with other stuff that's not prosthetics. I've done it with beard work. I've done it with all kinds of work. Kind of like there are no rules. The rules are the only thing that are restricting you from doing good work. That's mm -hmm. all. There are certain rules that you will find with your own work, but it shouldn't stop you. Rules shouldn't stop you doing your work. Mm -hmm. uh, and the sooner you can free up on the rules and ignore them and try something. I, one of the things I do when I'm doing more complicated makeups is that I, I try all kinds of things. In fact, actually the person that taught me this is Robert De Niro and try all the stuff, try everything, try the stuff that doesn't work. You know it's not going to work, but still do it because you may learn something from it because there's a little mm -hmm. portion of it that does work. And right. try everything. Be adventurous and try everything. It's very, very important. Yeah. Um, and if somebody says that's impossible, say, yeah, wait, okay, fine. And then go and try it completely. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, quantify why it doesn't work. Like well, specific. it's not even, I mean, you, yeah. Well, I, I'll say if one of my assistants says they want to do this, I say, well, it's not going to work. Go away and try it. Go away and yeah. try it. Better you learn yourself. But you were saying something, you were saying something a few minutes ago about about the fact of you, you've learned all by looking. I mean, I, I learned, I learned by looking. I learned mm. so much by observing other makeup artists and having the opportunity when I was very young to, to, to see other makeup artists do certain things. And I made sure that I, I asked, I said, do you mind if I watch? Um, there was a wonderful makeup artist called Eric Allwright. You know, good old fashioned makeup artist, one of the old school. I watched him doing some makeup one day when I was doing a film many years ago called A Passage to India when I was a junior. And I watched, I asked him if I could watch him do the makeup and he was doing, and I didn't. I, I still do what he taught, well, he didn't even teach me, I just watched, you know? You didn't tell me what you Yeah. This is the important thing. It's that thing of watching people work because there are certain things. If you say to somebody, can you show me something? They'll show you something. So they construct in their head the narrative of how they're going to explain it. When you watch people just do their thing, they'll do things they wouldn't necessarily think to tell you. And you will observe things 
like 10 people can watch the same person do something they'll each get something different from it because of how they're what they notice and there is something quite lovely about noticing how people work and i learn a lot from watching other people work i think that's one of the joys of working is you get better you exponentially better because you're around other people who are better than you and you watch what they do and so you sort of absorb it yeah you do and it is good to watch people work it's i i think a lot of the time you absorb it without knowing you're absorbing it and later on in life mm-hmm. you will you will think oh right that's where i got that from or you'll start to use you think oh that's where i got it from it, it's funny how these things sink in and i i tell people to watch me when i'm working uh you know juniors assistants trainees whatever i said watch you've got to watch and most of them currently see them glaze over and getting very pretty bored why i don't know because they're obviously not as interested as they should be i guess but the ones that really watch they they learn a lot and they learn they always come back to me and they say, I had no idea until I did it how much I'd actually learned just by watching. It makes a massive mm-hmm. difference. I mean, massive. Uh, just, just to watch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's hard to maybe understand if you are, well, if you have kids, you probably notice it more, but the, but the length of attention spans are, are radically reduced, I think, because what, what the stimulus that people feed themselves off, especially off of using a phone all the time, you know, the idea of watching a makeup for two, three hours, I, I can do that. But I, I, I've taught in classes where there's no way anyone can sit still for two hours and watch something. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that's a, that's a side note and not everyone's going to be that way, but there is yeah, a definite... Reduction Most in attention. Nowadays, I do take two or three hours. I get bored. <laughs> well, some of them do. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, Band of Brothers because that was a big deal. That was a good show. That was a big HBO show. Um, I, I, I tried to get on it. I mean, you won't remember this, but I tried to get on it, but I didn't. I didn't succeed. But I did work on Saving Private Ryan, so that was kind of fun. But um, but that was a that was a big show. I mean, that was a what what I like about this the whole thing about TV shows is that you get a longer time to tell your story. You don't have to cram it into an hour and a half. So it's not like Band of Brothers, which is like 10 episodes, I think. Each one's about an hour long. So you've got like 10 hours to tell a story. So you can really drill down. What kind of makeup things are there? Obviously a lot of prosthetics in that, but but it wasn't, you don't think of it as a prosthetic show, but there were a fair few injuries and stuff and all that kind of stuff. It was enormous. I mean, I, I mean, there's normally speaking, I do the makeup and the prosthetics and design the hair and then I like to do the lot, basically. Um, yeah. There was no way on that job that anyone could do the lot. Uh, so the makeup artist they got on board, absolutely lovely, talented young lady called Liz Tag. Um, and her and I got on terribly I well. know Liz well. She runs the IVA now, the IVA Academy. Yeah, she's a yeah. lovely woman. She's lovely. Absolutely. Uh, very talented. I have all the time in the world for her. But, um, yeah, so she... Uh, she was doing the straight makeup, straight makeup, and I was doing the prosthetics and all the makeup effects. Um, and it was enormous. But I, I had a great team. I had Matt Smith, Duncan Jarman. I had I had great people. Um, I had great mold makers. I, I, I set up a wonderful workshop. And it, it was a, one of those jobs, a bit like Chernobyl, where I actually said, you know, it cannot be gratuitous. This is going to be real. It's got to be how it is and it's another one of those stories like Geneva where it's a true story and so these things actually did really happen to real people and so it was a fascinating thing to do it was very very gratifying we had great producers great directors you know 
it was the first of its type. It was the first of these episodic, big episodic things. It was the biggest budget TV thing made at its time. I mean, mm. I mean, it was it was a great thing to do. It was absolutely a fabulous thing to do, and I had a yeah. fantastic team. But it was also, I don't think anyone had really done war wounds or wounds properly before. Uh, because I was looking at the tension of skin and how skin behaves and how muscle behaves, and really looking at it in a in a really I did a lot of research. I, I, I do a lot of research because I want things to look right. I don't want people coming back to me and saying, "Well, that's great, but look like you know that wound looked like a flower." You know, which you see a lot of wounds and they look like flowers. They're quite right. And real wounds don't look anything like a flower. So. Uh, <laughs> I very much wanted to do it right, and I was given the opportunity with time to do it right, and I and I and I think we did. And as and as I say, I had a great team. Uh, as good as your team, you can have all the ideas, but if you don't have the people to pull it off, then your ideas just kind of like sit in the mud. Yeah, definitely. Um, the reference thing is a really good point. I want to I want to drill down a little bit more into the reference thing because of something like. Um, Chernobyl, for instance, I know we're jumping around on the timeline a bit with this, but um, obviously Chernobyl, you've got the double whammy of the very peculiar, in as much as not many people have seen radiation illness portrayed in that way, that detailed and that that lengthy as well. There's some long, long shots where you really get to see what's going on. But also the fact that it was set, you know, where it was at the time it was, and one of the things that you mentioned, which is really good, is even though it was set in 1986, the styles were a good 10 years or so behind typical, because people, culture didn't spread as, as rapidly then because the internet wasn't around. So, do you know what I mean? People didn't adopt a, a universal style in perhaps they might do nowadays. So you had sort of 70s hairstyles in mid 80s in this sort of Eastern Bloc kind of look. So no one really had hair like that. Your actors are not going to look anything like that. So... There's a lot of work going into making them just look like normal people from a different time in a different place. Yeah, I mean, uh, for Chernobyl, I, one of the things that made me happiest of the whole thing was actually when I saw big crowd scenes, all the extras looked right because it was a different yeah. era and 1980s wasn't 19, you know, 1980s Russia was not 1980s England. It was very different and you did have to go back almost a decade to find out really what it all looked like. Uh, and then water it all down because they didn't have access to makeup like they had in the rest of Europe. Um, and so it was very basic, but they actually, because they were behind the Iron Curtain, they thought that they were really it, you know, um, and doing the right thing. But they weren't necessarily, but they had what they had, and that was fine. So it was like its own fashion. And so, as I say, when I looked at all the crowd, the extras, I mean, I'm very proud because almost everybody was wearing a wig uh, wow. because nobody had hair. A lot of work. <laughs> And everybody was bewigged, men and women. And then we came to the actors again. It was giving them a look. And that was great fun, working with great actors as well. It was a very different thing to do, but it was also trying to catch the era and trying to... The whole thing had to, again, it just has to look right. These things have to look right. That's what I do. I'm not... It's okay, I'm not a wobbly... As I said before, I'm not a wobbly monster man. You know, it's... um, I like the stuff that looks real. I like to reproduce reality to a degree, cinematic reality, which is another subject altogether. I mean, we could talk for ages, Stuart. I mean, uh, there's lots of things to talk about. 
Um, they have to be another podcast because I want to talk. I do want to talk more about that, but for this, I think we should stick to the to the the thing. So you've got obviously the 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 reference and the research and everything. But I remember you saying about how I read a few articles about you were saying about how like you know the um there there wasn't a lot of primary resource of uh, primary reference because Russia was keen to suppress what had happened. So there weren't expansive amounts of photographs in color close-up detail showing you what had happened with the burns and things so you know you had to kind of find another way to to, to research it as well it was like you had some images of when you were saying but a lot of it was reading because mm. yeah. you're not going to find a, yeah. a, a custom-made package of information ready to go yeah I, no no i mean there was certain information i i had when i came on board with the burns and stuff like that and with how things looked but but I, I soon very 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 soon discovered from the the reference that was there of these happy looking nurses passing you know, a bald guy who was looking perfectly healthy a glass of orange juice in bed. I mean I'll never forget that image. It's absolutely extraordinary. I soon realised there's something very wrong here, and they were they were basically images that were produced by the USSR uh, in order to mm-hmm. propaganda. To tell people that everything's actually fine, which of course it was far from fine. It was really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And there were then a very few, very scratchy black and white sepia type images of the real victims, with a very few of them. So I, I then I came to the conclusion: the only, the only way I'm really going to find out what is the radiation poisoning, really what it does to the body on that level, uh, is to start reading. And so I, I spent about three months researching. Uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, a lot of reading. I had a researcher. She came to work for me, um, give, just feeding me information. I still had to read it all. Some of it drove me potty. But I realized that so much of it came from underneath, from inside the body. And so it was a question of depicting that. And and then I, I had the idea of actually using my, my wonderful little tattoo company, Tattooed Now, in order to actually make it, actually to make it work. Right, uh, which was absolutely a crucial part of of the of, of the design. And it may sound funny to use tattoos, but they weren't that kind of like it wasn't kind of like an anchor saying pictures of yeah 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 yeah. Can you, so you can explain about the tattoos? So so obviously they're quite extensive. These burns you see sort of big big portions of the body. So how were the tattoos utilized, and what was good about using them or tattooing as a, a temporary tattoo transfer? why use that instead of just a, a paint job okay well the tattoos the, the thing is that okay I'll, I'll, okay i again it was as i said earlier it was one of those jobs where i broke the rules when you're using mm-hmm. silicon prosthetics you're meant to put color in otherwise it looks like wax i didn't put color in because i wanted it to look like dead skin uh, i had a wonderful um technician who was producing my silicons for me called lucy she she uh she got it. She understood what I wanted. And so the prosthetics that all overlapped and stuff, some of it had color, some of it no color, some of it a little bit of color. And she got it. And it's very difficult to do. And she did a wonderful job. Uh, it's like Barry Gower, you know, Barry Gower effects and, and he and his team. But Barry initially, he kind of got the idea of what I wanted. And it, it very, very soon occurred to me that, that I needed to get the color coming from underneath. But to paint the back of the prosthetics, is a big issue, takes an enormous amount of time, and I didn't have the time. To pre-paint the body with the detail that I wanted with veins and bruising and all that stuff, enormous amount of time. I mean, it would have taken hours and hours to apply, and it's kind of like, 
shit, man. Use tattoos. Uh, use that same that same technique. And so we would do body plans for the prosthetics, and there'd be body plans for the tattoos, and everything would be overlapping. And I would, you know, I have my tattoo company who uh, uh, did an amazing job. I mean, they are amazing. My, my two partners are incredible. Uh, mega, mega clever. So they, we did these these tattoos overlapping, and literally on the actors, I would we'd stick those on first. Those would be put on the body first. So virtually the entire paint job was done within the first half hour. It was very, very quick to do. Then you'd put the prosthetics on top, which is not actually, is not a lengthy process or shouldn't be a lengthy process actually sticking them on. What is always the lengthy process is then getting it to work with the paint job at the, fin- at the end and any hair work or whatever. But there was no paint job at the end. There was a tiny little watery yeah. stuff. And so we managed to do it very quickly. I mean, it was still a, a big makeout, so the long call and starting at two in the morning or three in the morning or whatever to get on set. But they, they, because we, we were doing everything, a lot of the body, bottoms of the feet, you know, you name it, it was gruesome. Then false fingernails because I wanted the fingernails kind of like rotting and teeth falling to pieces, the eyes falling to pieces, hair work. I mean, it was a it was a very big they were big makeups but if we hadn't used the tattoos for sure it would have been a much bigger bigger makeup so that's that's why I plumbed for that uh, because I wanted also colors coming from underneath and some places these colors coming through very bold and then at the edge of the burns I wanted it filtering out into these kind of little veiny bits which again the tattoos did so when the prosthetics ended what was happening was the tattoos were continuing. Yeah, it was pretty complicated, but it was an idea I had. Again, is breaking the rules, but that's what the rules are there for. That's what makes rules fun. And those are the makeups that people talk about, but there were so many nice little touches and things. Like I remember you saying about um, Stellan Skarsgård, you know, he's quite a fierce character in it, but, you know, you, you when you've got a character like that and you've got actors of that, like, and, you know, Jared Harris, and you really want to do a good job, but you don't want to do too much. So how... How do you make the right decisions? How do you know what's the right thing to do to them? Do you just look at them and then look at the person they're supposed to be portraying and then try and bridge the gap? Or is it a case of having read the script, you know, that this guy starts out as a hard ass and then kind of tapers off and gets it. And then when he gets sick, it's kind of like he's going to come around. So you use that to influence the look or is, well, is that a stupid question? I mean, Stellan, again, he's one of those actors that really loves makeup. I have to say all the actors that we had on, on Chernobyl, they all love makeup. Well, majority, anyhow, there'll always be some that go, I don't like makeup. That's fine. But then don't have any. But uh, Stellan was great. I've done his makeup a couple of times, and we've always it's fun because we actually create stuff together. Uh, it's like two children in a, in a toy shop, you know, or mm. doing Lego. <laughs> we build together we build the look together and he did want this kind of like cropped gray hair so he created this wig and went to alex rouse's to do a fitting stellan stellan's like me he's got kind of like uh, he's got no eyebrows and it's just kind of like it's not going to work stellan we've got to give you eyebrows and he said great i actually painted some on he said yep it's, it's a good idea get them made get them made so i, I so i should have done my my research on this and to be able to tell you who did them. There were these lovely German girls who did them, these these fabulous, fabulous eyebrows that I think they're made from squirrel hair. I think it's either squirrel hair, some kind of animal hair, but it comes to a point. 
So they're absolutely perfect, and they're inserted into a very, very fine cat plastic. I'm not actually not quite sure how they do them. It's very clever. But I'd always wanted to use these things. I'd seen them around, and this is kind of like my opportunity. It's like I stock up all these things inside me, like I did for Frankenstein, like I did for Chernobyl, like I've done for all. I got this. One day I'll use that. One day I'll use that. <laughs> and Frankenstein was one of those times I used tons of those things that were stocked up inside my little memory bank. And Chernobyl was another and these eyebrows, it's okay, fine, so let's get them in. Tricky to apply, absolutely fantastically 100% real, you know, they're absolutely amazing. I had no idea who was wearing fake eyebrows, so yeah, <laughs> so, you know, fair play. Not only that, every hair is the same for everyone because you can only use one set a day, yeah. and then they're thrown in the garden. And, and they did an amazing job, not just being able to supply very quickly, but every single one was identical. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, uh, my admiration for them is enormous. But, he, uh, but they did do it. And but the, the interesting thing is that if you didn't get them on exactly the right place, if they were a bit too high in the center or a bit too low in the center, you'd either look too sympathetic or too angry or too surprised or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And you're talking about for a fraction of a millimeter. They had to be perfect. Wow. And when you're talking about 150 quid a shot. Yeah. Don't we get that wrong? <laughs> but they see that's the joy I think of, of skilled makeup is that such a small difference. If that if that slight change can make it the wrong thing, by the same token, making slight modifications to the face needn't be grand gestures to have big effects on the character. That's the beauty of makeup, isn't it? That you can actually make someone different with these little touches. Yeah, but this is what we've been talking about. Less is more. It's it's yeah. you, you can take a tiny amount, two hairs. I've done it. Two hairs. And somebody looks completely different. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I promise you, it, it works. Hmm. And I've done it. I've done it with eyelashes. I've done it with eyebrows. I've done it with all kinds of things. It, it's and two little lines. You Suddenly, hmm. somebody looks tired. Yeah. It's, it doesn't take much to achieve a lot. It's just you've got to know where to put it. Yeah. With That's something all. like that, I mean, you were saying about the eyebrows. I mean, the beauty of those eyebrows, presumably they're not on a lace. Have you ever had to sort of, I mean, I know I've done some stuff for the crown and stuff. You know, there are certain times where there's just no choice, but you have to have some kind of digital intervention to get rid of wig lace because the fidelity of a camera on some things is so ridiculous that it's impossible to completely get rid of them. How do you feel about like digital cleanup? I mean, I think I, my personal feeling is it's a fair exchange. If, if they're digitally going to create, capture something at such obscene levels it seems like a fair trade that they would digitally clean things up that can't be done anywhere else and it's not necessarily sloppy work it's just the nature of a, a camera that can see inside your each atom it's kind of like i can't <laughs> I, i'm very I'm, I'm very very tempted to say i never have a problem Stuart. um i don't know what you're talking <laughs> but i'm not going to take that <laughs> uh, yeah I mean, the thing is that... 18 hours in a close-up will throw you under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's... The, the digital age is... is a, there's a big, big pile of bullshit there. Because it's all about the race to who has the best, not the race to what looks the best. It's all about yes. equipment and not actually the look. And DOPs absolutely yeah. hate it. Which is great they hate it because it immediately puts them onto our side because we have uh, something we hate together. It's like when you've got a really shitty yeah. producer, you'll actually end up with a great crew sometimes. It's, you're far better off with a nice producer, but, but you'll end up with a great crew because they'll all hate this person. 
which pulls everybody yeah. together. But we all hate digital. I mean, I, th- I think that's pretty unanimous because it always needs fixing because the production companies want want to use it because, oh, it's now 4K, 5K, 8K, whatever it is, they want to be able to tell the public, this is the best. You're getting the best. Mm. This is the new technology. But the new technology, mm. the DOPs are spending so much time using old lenses and a pot of Vaseline in order to soften up the new technology because the new technology is more than the human eye can see. And we don't need that. And it actually looks mm. ugly. So I have to say that a, a lot of the time with my work, I'm very proud to say I don't need it. But you catch a bit of hair lace on a wig in the wrong light or whatever, a direct light spot straight off it. You, you'll need help. Of course you will. And whereupon one goes. But that's perhaps a problem you wouldn't have had if you were shooting on 35 mil, is my point. No, you, you wouldn't know. have had it with 35 mil, not unless you're absolutely useless. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very cruel system, the new system, because it doesn't even look good. I mean, 35 mil looks lovely. The thing is, yes, we, we've got this technology and we have to make it work for us. So the thing is that there is also that side that one has to remember. There's a lot mm. it can do for us to enhance something. It's kind of like I can take this makeup so far, but if you just want to actually just move this and move that or change the color balance a bit or whatever, then, then that would be really cool. Mm. I think that's more useful for the big wombly monster stuff, uh, less useful for the kind of work that I do. But certainly if they've got the technology, I mean, they've got the technology, they, they, they have to use it. I mean, they, a lot of producers object to the fact that, oh, well, you know, the last, uh, the last movie we spent a fortune to taking away lace. We're going to have this problem with you in wigs. I said, well, no, you're not going to have that problem with me in wigs. But if you are going to use this, this technology, there will definitely be some, and you will have to take it away or don't use the technology. Yeah, so that's the thing. If you were filming on something like 35 mil, you wouldn't necessarily see those details. So that's why I'm saying it feels like a fair exchange if the image is so obscenely sharp that things like wig lace, even the best wig lace in the right lighting and the right camera close enough, you're going to see something um, that then it's a digital thing to have to clean up. That's a necessary thing of the fact that wigs exist. So, you know, what can you do? Yeah, I mean, it's also. I think it also does depend on how you work. I mean, I like to work very closely with the DOP. It's incredibly important that that one's friends with the DOP, and it's a it's a question of mutual respect. You know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine as well. Um, but but one does need help, and there's other ways of getting help than from the digital side. Uh, it's called lighting, and. Uh, there are good DOPs and there are not such good DOPs. And the good ones will listen because this is my area. This is what I know you can do to help me because I've been doing it for 40 years. I know what I'm talking about. And I've worked with some of the best DOPs in the world. So it's a question of uh, that symbiotic thing again of yours. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a crew, isn't it? That's the whole point of film crew. They work together and they're all pulling in the same direction. Yeah, it's one of the most important things. I mean, some of the best projects I've ever worked on, most successful projects, is when you get the heads of department, the designers working together well, when they've been cast well by mm. the producers. It's incredibly important when you're working with a really user-friendly DOP, a user-friendly costume designer, production designer you know, when, you, when you're working with these people that are all user-friendly then you're going to produce something that's really so much better and that the editor will like so much better and everybody will like so much better because it ends up being actually cheaper in the long run as well yeah and looking better 
can we talk a little bit about the um i'm gonna see if i can pronounce this it coriolanus that was a big movie <laughs> coriolanus. I'm, I'm sure every single joke that ever could be about how that's pronounced coriolanus um now that, <laughs> there, there are a lot of tattoos on that and i think that's how the whole tattoo now thing started we talk a little bit about the work on that movie and what that led to yeah, I mean, the, the work on that movie, well, that was Rafe Fiennes' debut directing movie. And Rafe's a very, very fussy man. I mean, he, he really is a perfectionist. He's wonderful mm -hmm. at his work, another great English actor. Uh, and I was very, very chuffed when he turned around to me and he said, I'd like you to come and design you know, this my, my first directing movie. And so I was, I was very happy to do that. And but. Again, it's a bit like Richard III. He brought it into Ian McKenna's Richard III. He brought it into modern-day warfare. It's not one of. I don't think it's one of Shakespeare's greatest plays. I don't know why, why he chose it, but, but, but Rafe obviously likes it. It's, he's wonderful in it. I, I think the cast is wonderful in general. I think it's actually a good piece. Uh, it's just not a great play, unfortunately. But one right. of the things that he wanted is is to have. You've got two armies, and one of the armies is very kind of like Christian, and he wanted them all, but he wanted them all covered in tattoos. And so we had hundreds of tattoos. I mean, I had to produce hundreds of designs for tattoos. And we were shooting and preparing in Serbia. And at that time, again, Serbia was very, very new to the film industry, the non Serbian film industry. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't much of a crew there. And so I, I found a couple of graphic designers through the art department. I said, look, this is how I do tattoos. And I showed them. And I said, let's start doing it. Here's the research, blah, blah, blah. Let's start doing it. They, they, these two young guys, then are now my, my two business partners. They were my assistants. Oh, wow. They're my, my two business partners on Tattoo Now. They did a fantastic job. Then about a year later, one of them phoned me up and just said, look, with your, with your name and your money, uh, I don't know where they got the money bit from, but with your name and your money, how about starting up this tattoo company, this temporary tattoo company? And so we did. And I'm very proud of it because I, th I think, I truly think we've you know, made the best in the world. Uh, Christian Tinsley came up with the idea years ago, but mm -hmm. with our artwork and our service and the way that we do it, and our adhesive is slightly different. I think everything that we do is just that slightly bit better. So I'm very proud of the company. But we did hundreds of tattoos for that. Hundreds and hundreds, and they, they work really well. But Coriolanus also is interesting because I also did a makeup that I very much like, and Rafe absolutely hated only because it was horrible to wear. He loves it. I think it's on. It's, I think it's on the poster of the film. He loves the makeup, but I literally I did a character makeup with blood and dirt, and with his piercing blue eyes coming through all this red and black and stuff. It really looks amazing. And it was, it was actually a character makeup. It was it, the, it placed wow. carefully. And that's quite tricky. I think getting like dirt and, and blood in the right place, that's not as easy as it sounds because it can often look like it's been placed there as well. Have you got any insight into uh, dirtying down and, and, and blood placement and things? Because a little bit of wisdom on that would be quite nice, I think. I can squeeze you just because I want to know. I, I have thought so many people how to do blood. I've taught so many people how to do dirt. And I've taught so many people how to lay on beards. This is the thing I tend to teach so many people. None of it is that difficult. You've just got to use your head. That's all. But to be honest with you, to say it on a podcast, I think is quite difficult because yeah. you've got to see it. You've got to get the dirt in there. It's got to be in the skin. If you're brushing the top of the skin, 
it's never going to work. It's got to be in the skin, then removed, and then right. put on again. Blood, there's something called gravity, you know, but it doesn't just go down. You, know, you hit somebody across the face, the blood will splatter, then the lines that are down will suddenly be dragged horizontally across the face, or the blood is coming down, they fall on their side, the blood yeah. moves. You know? And a lot of the mistakes that people make with blood is they over splatter, or it's all coming in one direction. And beards, but blood and dirt is difficult to do. And then you can do a great blood and dirt makeup. And you think that's fantastic. And then you absolutely kill yourself because you've got to do that same makeup for the next two weeks. Looking exactly. <laughs> and that's not something you could necessarily do as a tattoo and transfer it on, or do you think there's something about there? There are limitations to what you can do with that. Or would you just say you you actually can, but you've got to. But the and I do do that, and I do it with with scabs and grazes and stuff like that. But the problem is that every hit is different, every scab is different, every blood trickle is different, and you definitely definitely can do it. But you'd have to be so organised, and the director would have to be so organised, the producers have to be. It's not possible. It, it doesn't really work. I mean, with certain bruising things, it works. But again, you'd have to know where the bruises are. You'd have to make it in advance. You can. There, there are certain temporary tattoo people that make bruises and cuts and grazes, and we we do too. But you have to find the place for them. It it, it it's certainly it's it's a good it's a good trick. But you have to be organised and say, well, I'm going to. I mean, there was a actually a makeup artist from Jordan who about a year ago. She was very very organised. And said, I want all these uh, little grazes and scabs and bruises. This is exactly what I want. And uh, can you make this for me, please? And we did. She was very, very happy. Excellent. Difficult to know that in advance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like you say, you need to know and make decisions and supply the images and, and make sure it's all right. Yeah, it's not just a one-size-fits-all magic wand. No, no. <laughs> it's, it's, no. It's, it's work. No, it's not Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about Frankenstein? That was a big job. There was a lot of rubber on that. <laughs> yeah, and it really was rubber. Uh, foam latex, wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah. And on Robert De Niro, I mean, that's quite a heady mix, isn't it? You've got someone of that stature on a story that, that's that significant. Although I think at the time, perhaps it hadn't been overdone as a story then, because there's been lots of Frankenstein since. But at the time, it was quite new to see the original source material kind of used close because it was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I think is what it was called, wasn't it? The Kenneth Branagh one. And, you know, so you've got a very, very important story. You don't want to screw that up. And then you've got Robert De Niro, a very significant actor. That's a lot of pressure on a very young guy at the time. You know, that was, you weren't that old when you landed that gig. <laughs> no, I was, I was 30. I was 30 and English prosthetic people were not in any league at all. They were all American. And so I was up mm. against Rick Baker. I was up against a whole load of Americans of who was going to get this job. And uh, with I was then also at that time a partner at Animated Extras. And so I sat down with my partner at the time, Pauline Fowler, who very talented sculptor, uh, and we we put some maquettes together. And then I did a whole load of drawings, and then a chap who was also assisting me at the time, who was now a very well-known designer of his own right and has been for a very long time and a very dear friend dave white he did a few drawings with me and i went off to america to go and see mr de niro and uh, had a meeting with him in new york 
And basically, at the meeting, he, he said, uh, yeah, you've got the job, love it. You, you have the job. I walked in there with this maquette and these drawings and walked out with a job. That's amazing. I mean, that's quite scary as well. The actor that you'll be working on is going to be making decisions like that as well. It's not just he's a prop that gets told what he's going to wear. He has a big input. In yeah, I mean, it, it, it is Robert De Niro. Uh, so, yeah, and you know, Robert De Niro is one of the most powerful actors in the world. Uh, and, yeah, it, it is scary, but it was his choice. And to be honest with you, I mean, actors these days, I mean, it's even – something that I'm just about to do. You know, the producers wanted me, the directors wanted me, everybody wants me, but we just have to check right. with the actors that they're happy with. So it's not that unheard of, but with Robert De Niro, it's slightly different because they don't fly you over to New York for all these actors that might want to or might not want to use you. And, and yeah, Bob, Bob's different. He's, you know, one of the most powerful actors in the world. And, uh, and also once he says yes, it's yes. I mean... And yeah, I mean, it was a it was a terrifying moment, knowing that I suddenly all all of a sudden had this uh, this responsibility mm. as well. I was very happy that I had a certain responsibility that English makeup artists don't get a job like this, and the big big American boys and girls mm. they wanted it and didn't get it. So I had to really not fail. I had to show that an English makeup artist could do this. One of the little guys could actually do it. And we got nominated, so that's cool. Yeah, you got the nominated for the Oscar, which was amazing yeah. and what were the challenges what was difficult about this makeup i mean it was a there were scenes where it was full body i remember him coming out of that amniotic fluid and you know kenneth branagh struggling with him trying to get him to stand and slipping around so you got that kind of like you know wincing the heels getting damaged every time he's trying to stand up but there are other times where there's like tight close-ups i remember that that really tight close-up with his eyes looking through the the hole in yeah. the wooden fence or the wall and you're like oh man it was like <laughs> so what, what what was it there were a couple of stories there. i mean first of all that that close-up that you're talking about there was also at that same time a close-up of the mouth and it was mm. right at the end of the day and uh the the, the the mouth was completely detached the prosthetic mouth was detached was, you know every time he spoke he flapping around i said you can't shoot on it you cannot cannot shoot on it and they said look there is no choice we have to anyhow so then saw the rushes the next day and it looked perfect i have to say but I, was, no, I thought the whole thing was fucked. How did we just run in a bit of 355 at the last minute and hope for the best? <laughs> just press it down with the powder. Well, yeah, fast. yeah. Well, I, I think, no, I don't think that, you see, that wasn't, that wasn't even a, a, an option because the, because it was foam latex, it was so soaked with his own saliva, it wouldn't stick to anything, let alone, let right. alone the inside of his lip, which is nothing like sticking to anyone. <laughs> and then you've got Robert right. De Niro, he's kind of like, he's had enough. We've been shooting for, 14 hours or something so yeah. and, and he had the makeup being put on before that so it was like a 20 hour day or something you know, you know enough you don't start doing that to bob or anybody but you, you talk about yeah. the amniotic fluid i mean that that was just a great big vat of ky jelly basically absolutely absolutely fabulous <laughs> and on the set there was this kind of wall all around the area of about i don't know it was about it was probably about eight inches high or something and to, in order to keep all this amniotic fluid in place so it didn't go and drown the entire studios and there's i mean just buckets and tons of it you know anyhow it falls out and then suddenly i realized that there's robert De Niro, completely stark naked except it's not him at all you know i mean not even his willy was his willy nothing nothing but he was naked and, <laughs> and i said sorry guys you're gonna have to stop you have to stop he's 
he's lost his pubic hair. Oh, right. Stop, everybody. Stop, stop, stop. And so there, there was Bob standing up, you know, completely naked, but not him, uh, without any pubic hair, because it was on a lace piece. It's kind of like right. murkin, as they're called. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so everybody started digging around in this amniotic fluid, trying to find his murkin, because we didn't actually have a spare for some extraordinary reason. I thought we'd probably not thought it would never pop. I guess you didn't think it was going to be a problem. <laughs> and then suddenly, right at the back, right at the back, suddenly there's this prop guy said, kind of hanging up this kind of rat, dripping, dripping rat, saying, found it! And uh, the whole set burst into hysterical laughter. Um, oh, my yeah, gosh. We kind of then washed it, dried it out, stuck it back on, and off we went again. But, uh, that was the, the whole, the whole, to be honest with you, the, I mean, we were, talking earlier about breaking all the rules and what was considered to be impossible. There were many, many things on that that uh, I was told by the people that even Dick Smith actually said, don't, don't even bother, it's impossible. Uh, right. and, and I ignored it. I ignored it all. I ignored all of them. And I went, what was it that was impossible? What, what, what were the things that you were doing that were different on this? Was it, well, the, what was the unusual the challenge? I was doing... For instance, uh, well, Dick Smith said it, it was impossible. He, he also, he and Robert De Niro didn't get on, mm -hmm. but but he said that's impossible for starters. But but then the fact that Dick Smith had done a, an amazing film with an amazing makeup called Altered States, uh, which was really a full body prosthetic. I, Frankenstein was the first full body prosthetic that actually looked like a human being, but Altered States is all lumpy and bumpy. And he said, the thing is that the only way to get it to work, which I agreed with, was to get it under tension. And he said, the moment his actor kind of like brushed against something, it would split. And I wasn't just getting it under tension. I was getting it under enormous amount of tension because I put a whole muscle or artificial muscle and bone system under parts of the prosthetic in order to extend the arm, extend the leg, but making sure it moved correctly. So the muscle system I put in there. Oh, right. So there were muscles underneath the piece that would were not attached to the skin. Muscles underneath the okay. And the prosthetics were stuck on in some of them, but not right. in other areas. Incredibly complicated. Yeah, you got to know where to stick and where not to stick. Uh, and then extending with nylon and it. It's extending the bones with nylon pieces that all had to be put on before the prosthetic went over the top. And all the muscle system had to be put on before the prosthetic. Right. And was the tension was the was the tension from the fact that the foam just shrank when it was baked, or you actually built in a certain amount of tension as well? With Dick Smith, it was because the foam shrinks when it bakes. With me, I reduced in certain parts, I reduced the body size of certain parts of Robert De Niro so that there would be an enormous amount of tension so that it would need very little adhesion with, with, with the adhesive and right. it would very much stay in its place. But where it was over the artificial muscles that were highly polished, harder density foam, uh, and there would be no glue at all. There would actually be talcum powder because I'd want right. this outer skin to move over the muscle so that when he twisted right. his arm, you could see the muscles moving below. Um, gotcha. It's complicated, crazy stuff. I mean, just probably not necessary, but it did look great. <laughs> and and the thing is that because of that, in some areas, the tension was so high that I have to say, never split, never had a problem. So all these problems that that Dick pointed out and other people pointed out, I have to say, I had none of the problems at all. Amazing. Uh, 
and there was you had some and, good i think it was reza kareem i think was was he the one that working on the phone at that time in the mole shot i don't know if you remember because he was the guy he was and there was him and, and dan or oh, dan nixon I think was helping out and there must have been other people in the workshop and I'm not going to remember, but I remember asking him about stuff because I was doing some foam on Mary. That's my first job was running foam on Mary Riley. And I ran next door to speak to Reza because he was amazingly helpful trying to get my phone mixes right. Yeah. I had a great team and, but the things like I wanted everything seamless. I wanted all the prosthetics to be, have no seams on the outside because the amount of time it would take to seam firm and also the fact you'd always really see the seams. And so every yep. single mold, all the molds for Robert De Niro, they were all collapsible. Wow. There was one I, I asked Dave White to make and it was a collapsible mold for the head. I think I've actually still got them all. Um, and I think the inside of the mold is 36 uh, interlocking pieces and it was a fiberglass so that all the locking system that he made for that is all done with metal wow. uh, the other thing the other i must have said dave mad because the other thing i wanted him to do is the hands i wanted them seamless up to up to the middle of the arm i wanted them absolutely seamless and so i i got him to make these these cut up cores that were hands robert de niro's hands they were all like a like a mar- well, like a puppet. And so yes, they had wires on. You could that's right. break the finger. Yes, I think I remember seeing them. You know, the fingers inside, they're all in bits with wires running through them, cables running through them, all in bits, and you jiggled them in. And then once they were pretty much in place, you'd then pull the cables at the other end, and everything yeah. would go, ding, ding, and everything would sit perfectly. But the outer piece of the mold was one piece for the hands yeah. and arms. Yeah, that was me being completely mad, but also having the people that were mad enough and patient enough to put up with me yeah. and do it and did it for an amazing job. I, mean, I had some really, really amazing people working with me on that who have all gone on to become even more amazing. Yes, I, uh, yeah, the da- David White was one of the first people I'd seen whose work, I think it was, were you there when, um, oh, what was it? It was Meg Ryan and... Mary uh, Ryan. Uh, no, uh, no, 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 it was Meg Ryan and uh, da, 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 oh, and Robert Downey Jr. movie, and it was called Renaissance. And there was a oh, foam yeah. chest piece, I think, that Dave David White had made, and it was a beating heart appliance and stuff. Do you remember all that? That was about the same yeah, time I, I started, there. after Frankenstein there. Yeah, I was there for some of it. I think I was actually doing something else at the time. Renaissance, yeah, uh, Paul England did the makeup for it. Good film, interesting film. Uh, but yeah, they, yeah, we did several for that. We also did a, <laughs> we made a prosthetic umbilical cord for a baby, which uh, I don't know why I remember that. I have no, no particular reason to remember that, except making umbilical. I think I remember it being made. Was a real pain. Yeah, very tricky. So yeah, that was that was called the Frankenstein. So going from Frankenstein to something more more recent and much cleaner, uh, the Queen's Gambit, which is a movie that I, uh, sorry, TV show. Uh, it's a Netflix thing. Um, which I watched uh, a while back when it when it came out, and it was just gorgeous. And it, it's it's a nice example of how like the range of work you get involved in, you know, a very very different show altogether. Something where you've got very stylized, beautiful '60s look and and hair, but you're still trying to tell a story, you know, where she has a kind of a rise and a fall, and then a rise again as she matures and you know fights off the demons of drink, whatever it was that she was getting stuck into. Can you talk a little bit about 
the Queen's Gambit and what that was like? Well, I mean, the thing is, makeup-wise, that's where I started. I started in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. I mean, that's not how old I am. But I was doing the... <laughs> Those the stars and spirits. I was doing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Junior makeup artist. And I don't know, it, it, there's the opening dance sequence with all these lovely dance girls. And that's yeah. what I was doing. And But my, my, my main job was actually doing the uh, the line on the back of the stockings down their legs. And they just did nothing but take the piss out of this very shy, young makeup kid. But that's where I started. I started doing 1940s, 50s glamour. That, that's what I really loved. And then went on to do prosthetics, which is what I got really well known for. Yeah. That's how I knew you was prosthetic. And I learned after all that, that you did all these other things. When I started out, I was like, holy shit, I didn't realize you did. Because uh, I never known you, you know, you're the one showing me about cutting edges. You're the one that taught me how to do a cutting edge. Yeah. You know, that was my experience of things. It's like, so I realized, I, my head, Daniel was prosthetics. And then I learned, oh shit, he does all this other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago, I figured this out. But I'm, I, I was quite surprised because yeah, I didn't realize that you, you had this whole other skill set that i never was witness to because i wasn't there to see it i mean no i love doing glamour i've done quite a lot of glamour people just don't know about it and i love doing glamour and i love period and but glamour also is again part of character and the whole thing is it's character makeup i'm a character makeup artist mm -hmm. but you can also make a character using glamour i've done it yeah oh queen's gambit <laughs> you know <there's> all <laughs> with, with using makeup to 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 make a character I also did it for Zero Dark Thirty with Jessica Chastain. Jessica always said that I did the best eyeliner in the world. Uh, apparently, lots of other people think that now as well. Oh, that's cool. But it's not nothing with but... me at all. It's 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 not. I don't get asked to do it every day of the week. I mean, I wish I did get asked more, but I don't. But, but yeah. it's fine. It's nice to have the variety. Well, I I I wanted to put because on the uh, the blog post that'll go with this, I've got some some pictures that you sent me. But there's a couple of stills from. Um, there's a little clip that Netflix have released of. The hair, the, the hair and the wig going on, and there's a picture of Claudia with, you know, dressing uh, the hair down, and she's got um, a phenomenal amount of hair, this big, yes. long blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. And that's all tucked up under the wig. And until yeah. you see that picture, a lot of people don't realize the work is to get that hair up out the way, get it down, yeah, and then put the wig on the top without it looking like it's a big thing. Yeah. It's like that's why I wanted to include that picture because. When you do a good job, there's so much stuff that goes unnoticed. And that's part of what this podcast is for me is to, is to draw attention to these things that I know require skill and go unnoticed, you know? So, um, yeah, please talk to me about that. About the hair. But, and your hair. Yeah. What that, I mean, that was a very distinctive look as well. I mean, I guess that's, you know, it would have been dictated to in the book, but, or was it? Was she specifically a... No, the book, she has brown hair. She have, she's not even a redhead in the book. Right. So what made you go with that look? Was that your decision to make it that style? And that's a very distinctive look. It was very, very much my decision. What I didn't know at the time, it was also Anya's decision, which right. also didn't know at the time, it was also the director's decision, Scott Frank. We all actually decided that she should be a redhead, but we didn't actually tell each other until I actually said, I think she should be a redhead. Oh, well, I think that too. Oh, I think that too. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, she, so in the book, she's got brown hair. But in the book, she's a less glamorous person as well. But, but I, I think for, for TV, film, whatever, then I think I think yeah, the, the, the casting was correct. I think the, the look is correct. I think everything about it is correct because it's – it's good. I mean, it's good. It's, the whole thing looks fantastic, and it was great to do. But 
again, it was teamwork. I have to say, you know, we we had Uli, we we had Gabriella, the Uli, the scratch designer, Gabriella, the, the the costume designer. You know, we had very, and we all got on very well, and we all made it work. And Steve, the the DOP, who drove me potty half the time, but I kind of because he was doing something I I just didn't quite understand. Actually, it is what he was doing. We never actually see because it's digital is what they do to it afterwards. Which is one of the disadvantages of digital, because what you see to the eye is not what you get afterwards. Yes. Which makes the work a lot more difficult. But, yeah, I worry uh, about that. I worry about yeah. that, because, because, I mean, that must have happened to a certain degree with grading, but certain colours are going to change, aren't they, in the process? Um, and they might be, you'd look at the finished thing and go, that's not the colour I chose, and there's a reason I didn't choose that colour. But I guess you have to let go of some control, because... I remember the first time I ever really got a big shock I was doing uh, I was doing a film out in Italy, and uh, there was this dinner party, all candlelit dinner party. And if we were shooting on thirty five millimeter, you know, it would have been quite different. And uh, and I was saying to my assistants, you know, don't worry too much about topping up the red lipstick and doing this and topping up the brusher. It's all candlelight; it knocks out the reds completely. You you just never will never see it. So don't worry too much. Yeah, I started shooting and into it a little while and. I realized you could see all the reds. You could see everything that normally the yellow candlelight would knock out. And we right. could see everything. And I went into this minor panic on the inside and turned around to my sister and said, forget everything I said about not seeing the reds. <laughs> and, no more reds, cut that right back. Now, yeah, it's a, it, 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 it's a very different thing. And yeah. the problem is it actually makes our work much more difficult. Because what we're seeing to the eye, again, the camera doesn't see what the eye sees. Yeah, wow. But you have to trust yeah. your instincts. You have to trust your instincts, and you just have to do the job as quick, as best as you can and get on with it. There's nothing else yeah, you can yeah. do. No. Um, going back to the, the, the looks, because what I thought was really nice about the Queen's Gambit, you see Beth as a young girl, and, you know, she had this sort of tragic beginning, and then her hair's as is often the case with little redhead kids, because I was a redhead kid myself, this hair's thin and fine and just, it's just this, this, and then when she sort of goes to school, and the you know the girls are taking making fun of her because of her clothes, and then she kind of takes that to heart and becomes very stylish over time, and very slick. So, did you have that? Was was that in the book? I haven't read the book, but was that was that? It seems like that was a a, a dial that she turned up herself to kind of push back, but she never never claims it. She just does it. Do you know what I mean? So, did you take that as a lead, or is that a thing that you? built into the makeup as a to build her character i mean were you guided in that way in the book or was it in the script or was it something that came up in meetings everything i mean if you're going to do your job on something like that particularly it's script led i never read the book i didn't read the book but i but uh, i was led to believe that the book and the script were very very close which they were from everything i understand about it now for sure but uh yeah uh it's, it's the makeup was telling a story was helping to tell a story the hair was helping to tell a story of this girl that goes through absolute hell gets put into a place where where she you know she's an orphan she's alone she's all by herself i, I mean i honestly it's a, something i understood i could relate to the character very well because i was at the age of six thrown into boarding school all by myself and given a bloody haircut uh, so I can relate to the whole of it very well. Um, Anya, again, the actress, she, she, she could relate to it all very well for other reasons. 
and similar reasons, which is also why Annie and I got on so well, is because we could relate to the character. And I think you know, Scott, could, the director, could as well. So it's, I mean, you read a script, you have an idea of how it should progress. You see the cast, and that helps you to understand how it should progress. And so, yeah, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a difficult they weren't difficult decisions. It was just a question of finding out the way to get from A to B. And I did a, a certain amount of research uh, into the period. And somebody I was working with at the time actually pointed out Natalie Wood. And that was kind of gave me my end game. Um, why Natalie Wood? Because there's, there's, it just was a particular photograph that took my took my imagination. That you look at the actresses from that age because you, you went from something very plain to something very glamorous. So I was looking at orphanages, I was looking at ch little children of the period. And so I just put together a whole load of pictures. I also have to be doing fittings in New York at the very beginning of it. And so I was able to go to a wonderful library in New York, which gave me all kinds of information I needed on the Jolene character, for instance. And I knew what I wanted, but I couldn't find the reference. I couldn't find it. I knew, I, I knew, I, I absolutely knew what I wanted. It was in my mind's eye. And then I went to this library in New York and I told them what I was doing and I told them what I wanted. And they just said, start looking in this area, this area, this area. My God, it's fantastic. And I found what I wanted. I found exactly what I was, was in my mind's eye. And it was great. So it's, again, research. But the reason, that's the fun. You know, that's the fun. I mean, my next job at the moment is, a, is this 18th century piece, big 18th century piece. And the problem is the research that I need is in London and Paris. And with COVID, I, right. I, I, can't, I can't get there. So and I can't get there myself. So I'm going to have to make a plan. I'm going to have to, yeah. I've got, I'll find a way. Do you have, I mean, it's a very clumsy thing to ask, but do you have a kind of a, a process of research or is it just a case of, you just read something. I mean, what, do you have like a starting point or is every job going to be different for you? It sounds like reading is a big part of it. Every job is different. Reading is an enormous part of it, opposed to just looking at pretty pictures. Pretty pictures, obviously, we're in a visual thing, are very important. But there's a question of seeing enough of them and understanding of where they come from. You've got to, you've really got to understand where they come from and what bits, what's real and what's not real within a picture. So whether it's a photograph or a painting, Paintings are much worse, obviously, because they're fake. You know, it's what people, especially when you're talking period, it's what people want to see. If it's photographs of the 1960s, you're going to see models in a lot of it. So you've got to you've got to dig deeper. All the time you've got to dig deeper, like I did with Shinobi. You've got to dig. Uh, and if you can't find what you know should be there, then you've got to start reading. And so you just dig, dig, dig until you find it. And that, that's the interesting thing. It's a bit like being an archaeologist. Whatever you know, digging for something, and you know, but but the, and different in archaeologists, you know, there's a pot of gold at the end. If you will find what you need, invariably you will find it. So it's the the whole research thing is a very interesting thing to do. I think one of the problems we have with research, or one of the problems we have, is that people are forgetting about libraries. Libraries are the best place to go. Nothing beats a library. You go into Pinterest, you go into Google, you go into you will see the same images time and time again, and it will not tell you what are the root of the images. There will be nothing written yep. about it. There is some information, but not enough. Yeah, it'll be sloppy curation, won't it? That's endlessly repeated. Like you say, it doesn't necessarily 
tell you what's in it. Because one of the things you mentioned before, which is really important, is what products did they have, you know? And that's not necessarily going to be evident in the picture. It's like, what were they using? How did they yeah. get that look? Yeah, that's right. I mentioned and do the, the products make other things possible, like the yeah. beehive thing? And, like, no one was doing that before. Is that because there wasn't a thing or that there wasn't enough time in a person's day to be able to spend hours doing that or whatever, you know, there's always a, an antecedent to how the look came about and you need to find that out. The beehive is very old. That was just something badly choice of a bad choice of my plot from, from, from uh, my love of the B 52s. But yeah, yeah. but do you know what I mean? It was just, uh, well, it's not necessarily an error of yours. Everything keeps on going around in circles, for God's sake. You know, eyeliner's popular again. You know, it wasn't five years ago. Whatever. Everything keeps on going around in circles. Nothing much is new. There are certain things that are new, or there's just a different take on an old thing, and therefore they call it new. But, yeah, the beehive's not new. The way it was done was new, but it wasn't that new. They were doing it in the 18th century. As, uh, but the products are very, very important, and the understanding of how people lived is an understanding of the culture. You have to look at all of it. You have to. You just there's so much to understand to have to understand. And then it's going back to what I was also, I think, saying earlier. It's what is acceptable on the screen. So you're dealing with reality, but you can't necessarily do reality. You know, the 18th century pocked skin. You can't do, you know, on Michelle Pfeiffer underneath the caked on white makeup, which you also can't do on Michelle Pfeiffer. So you have to find a way of doing it. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to do. It's very, very difficult uh, to do a lot of the makeups because you're just not allowed to do it. Something that they did in the 1960s, which is great to look at, I mean, it's absolutely hysterical, is they completely ignored. They absolutely ignored period in so many films. They ignored period and everybody's got eyelashes and blue blue eyeshadow in uh, 1863 and pink lipstick. You know, every, <laughs> and uh, these t- this twirly hair, you know, that just didn't exist then. They completely ignored it, but we don't do that anymore. But we're also not allowed to, uh, thank God we don't do it anymore because it really didn't look good. We, we can't do that anymore, uh, but we can't also do the reality Kirsten Chalmers did a version of, I mean, I actually haven't seen it yet, but there there was a chat that I did with her. She did a version of Catherine the Great, and she was saying that all men in the army had to wear, had to have, uh, had to grow moustaches. And if they couldn't grow, then they painted them on. Now, this is also, I know, true. But she did it, and good for her. I mean, it's great. I I say, I haven't seen Catherine the Great, I do want to see it, the version that she did. I mean, good for her for doing it. There's all kinds of things that you can't do. You just can't do it. Which is a shame. Yes. It's, so it's you have to you have yeah. to draw a fine line. That's the thing. What's what's real and yeah. what's acceptable. And similarly, you watch things now where you're going to go, you couldn't say that, you couldn't do that now. So things change over time, don't they? So, you know, what people are prepared to accommodate or would criticize uh, changes as, as, as time goes by. But yeah, you're right. I think it's that thing of just having an interest or the capacity to be interested in certain things where you read around the subject. You don't just go for the bullseye. You actually understand around it so that your knowledge is a bit more complete so that you can function. Like one thing I'm, I remember you saying about like the, the radiation burns, I don't know if that's the right expression, but the radiation illness was, was how the body was kind of attacking itself from the inside out. So you'd have to read all that. And once you sort of genuinely understand as best a non-medical person can what is actually happening to the body 
then you've got a bit more freedom to do things and make decisions without having to have a, a, a reference for everything because you won't find a reference for it. No. But if you understand it as a process, you can kind of yeah. play with it like jazz in a way. You, you, you can move freely within those rules because you're very clear about what those rules are and what they would do. Mm. No, no, no. Absolutely. And with Chernobyl, it was a question of understanding the chemistry, understanding what actually happened to people the, on a on a molecular level, atomic molecular level, to understand what was happening in order to uh, uh, in order to actually produce the, the work that I did. Uh, and also to know that what I did was actually true and real. Yeah. There's a very interesting pretty sure it's Jared and Stellan discussing this on a and what happens to the human body with these tiny little atoms. Yes, he described them like little bullets flying around. Uh, right. And if you imagine it, that's absolutely the perfect description because uh, these little bullets are flying around and uh, thousands and thousands of them. And each time they go through a cell, they're creating a hole in the cell and they'll just keep going bing, 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 bing inside and that cell will just fall to pieces and start yep. leaking and it's gross and that's what happens and the softer the cell so the mucous membranes go first i'm not going to go too far into it because i did go into it and it's not not nice it's really not nice yeah but it was very important to learn in order to do the, the work that i did that gives justice to the situation because i wasn't lying i was not a lie which is really good. I'm not making. I, 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 Chernobyl is quite interesting because my my agent actually said, "Look, they want you to do this thing called Chernobyl." I said, "No, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do a zombie movie. There's just no way." But anyway, I don't do kind of like zombies and whatever somebody would make of Chernobyl. The chances are it would be a zombie movie. And she said, yeah. "For God's sake, Daniel, I don't know really what it is, but do me a favor, just read it." And so I sent these scripts and I opened them, started to read them. And it's one of the very few times in my life that I just couldn't put them down. Just absolutely brilliantly written. And by and I, I then phoned my agent back up when I finished it. And I just said, to her, yes, I, I really want to do this. Yeah. And it was an amazing show. I mean, it's such a harrowing thing. But at the same time, it was utterly compelling, wasn't it? It was, it was really, really well done. I don't think it could have been done any better. No, I don't think so, too. I think it's, it's, it's an amazing piece. It's something I'm really, really proud to have been a part of. Uh, and I was a part of it. I'm on it, you know, which was also nice. Nobody intended the prosthetics to be that. That's the story, and so that's kind of really yeah. cool as well because it's like doing a makeup. It's not about the makeup. It's about the story. It's about the yeah. character. And I'm so up for that yeah. that that it's great. I mean, I think there are some people say no. It's got to be about the makeup. That's kind of like, no. It's not. And so. We, we, you know, Craig, uh, the scriptwriter, amazing man, wonderful script, and he's famous for for um, his scriptwriting. One of the things he's famous for is the the, uh, the film The Hangover. He's a comedy writer, and this is his first piece he's ever written. But can do other things. You know, uh, we had a fabulous director, fabulous production designer, fabulous costume designer. Amazing. The whole thing was amazing. Incredible yeah. to work on. Very, very, very hard work. But you knew you were doing something that was worth it. You knew it from the moment you read the script. You knew you were doing something that was right. And it's something that had to be said. It's very rare that you get that opportunity within our industry to actually work on something that you know has to be said, people should know about. So it's really worthy. Yeah. I was quite surprised. 
but the official death toll is like 31. That, that remains to this day the official direct death toll because of the, the consequences of it. You're like, what? <laughs> Unbelievable. And one last thing I want to touch on, because I, I realize we've been going quite a long time. One thing I like to talk about is, is how one acts as a designer in that you've got, like, for example, you've got something like Chernobyl. So you've got the overall look of things. You've got, obviously, a lot of people with hair and makeup who are just civilians. Then you've got the the injuries, the extensive injuries, which prosthetics. I know you had like Barry Gower and BGFX are involved and he's got a team of people. So as you sort of sort of spread out, you start, you know, you start involving a lot of people in the execution of this. So it's quite important, I mean, to say that not everybody can be a designer because just being good at makeup isn't a designer because you've got to be able to delegate. You've got to get other people to follow the instructions so everyone's kind of pulling in the same direction and that's not an easy thing to do i don't think i don't think i could do it i mean I, I i'm pretty sure i couldn't but i know enough about my little bit that if you gave me a thing to do i would do it well but that doesn't mean i could also be a designer so is this can we talk a little bit about the job of a designer and what that feels like and how because obviously it's a hard thing to do well and i think it needs to be spoken about because I think when people just see good makeup design happen, they just assume that they all just, you know, it all falls into place and say, no, that happens because someone up high has kept quality control on that and, and hired and fired the right people. And do you know what I mean? And there is difficult de decisions to make along that way to keep things on track. I think, I, I think it's a very interesting question. And, uh, I think the title of designer is a very dangerous title. And to be honest with you, it's quite a recent title because we there were no makeup designers. There were key makeup in America and chief makeup artists, uh, hairdressers in, in in the UK. I'll just I'll just take the UK and America. It just simplifies things. But but um, there was no designers. Desi the designer thing came along when uh, there was a tax situation, and the only way to actually remain as a uh, a self employed person, you you had to have the title of designer. And so it it appeared, and for good or for bad, it's uh, generally speaking a good thing. But to be a designer, I see a lot of CVs, uh, and I see people that have been doing it for two years, and they are designed this and they designed that and designed this. It's kind of like everybody wants to be a designer. All these makeup hair people want to be designers. I have my right hand person, Natasha, who is mega amazing one of the best makeup artists hair people i know anywhere she doesn't want to be a designer she's been doing it a long time she's been working with me for 10 years plus she doesn't want to be a designer because she wants to be a designer when she's going to be a designer she wants to be a supervisor i give her the job as key when i can and she's very wise because to be a designer before your time is not saying it's not actually saying anything good about yourself i don't think you be a great supervisor, be a great key, you know, the right-hand person. Be a, be great at that and then be a designer. But I just see so many CVs with designer there, designer that, designer there. Being a designer is, you can be a designer. It's a very difficult thing because you can be a designer in a small movie. You can. Yeah, but not everyone, not everyone who's a good makeup artist can be a designer. That's kind of where I'm going with that. It's kind of like there's nothing wrong with being a really fucking good, competent makeup artist. Do you know what I mean? That's not second base. I mean, that's, that's, that's still a good thing to do. But I think you have to have been a good makeup artist first to be a designer. So you can't leapfrog and jump the gun and get past all that and like speed things up. 
Fast track. People, people, people do want to leapfrog. They always want to be more important, possibly, than they maybe are, or they want to show that. But I think to show that you are a really, really good supervisor or a really good key, or to show that over a period of time, and you've been working with the same people over a period of time, then people, then producers will see that shit. Now this person wants to be a designer. Fuck man, the experience that they've had, we want them to be our designer. Yes. And that's very different. And so you're talking at just a different level. It depends what level you want to be at. You know, Natasha's, I think, doing it the right way. It depends on on the level. Uh, it's also, if you're going to put yourself in, and you don't have tons of experience, you're going to put yourself in as a designer, you're up against another 20 designers. If you're going to put yourself in as a supervisor, you're up against another five. Yeah. You've got more chance of working, more chance of getting the experience you really need in order to be a good designer. I think people all they all want to be ahead of where they are or where they should be, and therefore they're stifling their own career. That's my honest opinion. I will employ people as my, my supervisors and my keys and whatever, uh, and they'll learn a lot because I've got nothing to hide. I, I've got no axe to grind. I want people to be successful, people that have talent and people who are nice. I want them to be successful. That's all I want to see for them. So if you want to go out on your own and do the designer do the designer route, I'm a designer, I won't do that. I won't be a, you know, I won't be a supervisor, I'm a designer. I, th- I think you've got to rethink it. People that are doing that have to rethink it. Because I think there's better ways of going, and uh, if they have the talent and, and the patience, they'll end up as a great designer, opposed to somebody that's fuddling it. Well, I fuddled it, but there were no designers in my day. <laughs> <laughs> I think you paid your dues to get to that point, and that's the thing. It's it's, it's putting in the hours and and, and having the the, the grey hairs to show for it. It's working. It's giving yourself the opportunity to be a supervisor or a key to work with somebody that's really, really experienced, I think is great. To ignore that, I think is really a bit dumb. Yes. It really is. It's as simple as that. Get in there. Be a key. Be a crowd supervisor. And one of the things that really pisses me off is that, oh, no, I'm not going to employ so-and-so because they're a crowd supervisor. I don't want them doing the actors. What a load of bullshit that is. Crowd supervisors make the best fucking people to do actors. They know how to do it fast. They know how to do it well. And they know how to organize. Yeah. I would use a crowd supervisor over some other supervisors, almost definitely over a designer, in order to come and be my supervisor or my key. Because the chances are they really know. I started off in crowd. Yeah. I think you really do cut your teeth doing things like that. That's where you. I did crowd, I did crowd 1940s makeup, that, this, that, blah, blah. You know, the stockings on the dancing girls at, on, on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, I started off in crowd. Crowd's great. It's actually great. It's, 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 it's where you, you learn an enormous amount and you put up with some obnoxious people and you learn how to deal with that. Yep. Yeah, it's, it, it's the bullpen. Thank you very much, Daniel, for your time. I really appreciate you sitting down and chatting to me about this stuff. Um, it's, it's been a long time coming. It's, it's a chat I've been meaning to have for a long time and I get to ask questions that I want to know. And basically everyone that's listening has to come along for the ride really. But so thank you very much. Well, no, Stuart, thank, thank you. Love. It, it's been a real, real, real pleasure. You know, I'm a great admirer of your, of you and what you're doing uh, and what you stand for within our business. I think, I think you're doing an incredible job and I'm very proud that I was there at your beginnings and I'm very proud to be able to help you 
wherever it's been along the way and, and still help in any way I can. So uh, you thanking me, I thank you uh, very much from my heart. So thank you. Well, it was nice for me to chat to him. It was a big deal for me because it was a chance to talk over some long held beliefs that I'd built up over many years. So thank you, Daniel, for giving me your time so freely. It's much appreciated. It's quite, quite a career he's had and, and his dad, you know, he's got a picture on his Instagram of his dad playing chess with um, Anthony Quinn yeah. in, in Lawrence of Arabia. I know he worked on Lawrence of Arabia. Oh my God. Ben Hur. Yeah. Fucking hell. It's amazing. Um, stuff you do. Well, Daniel's got some, some pretty good ones too. You know, he's, he's from the original Star Wars legacy. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Matrix 4, he's done um, Queen's Gambit, Chernobyl, Zero Dark Thirty, Cloud Atlas, Hurt Locker, Gathering Storm, Band of Brothers, Richard III, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, The Crying Game, Empire of the Sun. Yeah. It's a name Hurt of a few. And, Did you say Hurt and, Locker? And, yeah. yeah, Hurt Locker. But also um, something that really gratified me was working on the, um, remember he said about the dancing girls on the Temple of Doom, like painting yeah. the seams on the stockings. And it's like, that's, that's crazy. Just, you know, anything to do with that movie. I love that film. I saw that at the cinema. So, so when you find out something about someone you've known for a long time, you go, I didn't know you worked on that. It's amazing. So that's really cool. But anyway, I digress. Getting all gushy. So there we go. Um, and we have some good ones coming up that we have still got to schedule definite times, but we've got got some people in the wings that are going to be some cool podcasts that I'm really stoked about. Yes. The kind of things that you just need to research and, and, and make sure you get your your questions ready looking at our uh, our ratings we've got 36 five-star ratings on uh, apple Podcasts. we've got one two-star rating i'd love to know why it wasn't one star but not every star not every rating is a review but uh, thank you yeah. to those who left a rating and who left a review well um, i've gotten my my book's gotten a i think it was a one-star review on amazon not because he didn't didn't think the book was great is because it arrived damaged so he so he gave it a one-star review that's right oh well geez i'm sorry I, i'll hand deliver it to you next time i was reading it and then it started raining so thumbs down from me yeah yeah that's quite funny when you you can think of the best books that you've ever read and someone will have a one-star review anyway you're welcome to uh to dislike it of course but thank you to those of you who left a rating review um one thing i would say is that please share this episode if you enjoyed it you can help us grow the show naturally because we don't pay for advertising because we don't want to interrupt the world with things uh so if this is your thing and you know someone else who would dig it then please let them know we'd love that yes and leave us a voice message on on the website battleswithbitsofrubber.com or email us at stuartandtodd at gmail.com and let us know how your cake turned out. That's awesome. Prosthetics is quite a small world. But every week I'll reply to somebody on a forum who has a you know, technical question about something and often I can send them a link to an episode of the podcast that answers that specific thing that they're asking mm -hmm. about because we've covered it. Yeah, well, it's just like, like the, the tutorial that we're working on right now for the next issue of Prosthetics Magazine. I referred back to episode 39, I think. Right. Where we were talking about, you know, where you were, you had brought it, it was your point of, you know, what does it cost for you to do nothing for a day? More than you think. <laughs> <laughs> More than you think. And more than you and think. So when you're trying to figure out 
how to how to budget and bid on a project, how to quote a project, know that you're starting out in the hole. Yes. <laughs> because of that, because of that, that doing nothing for a day, you got to make that you got to make that back because you because break breaking even's not no way to run a business. No, exactly right. Yeah, if it costs you just fifty quid a day just to stand there and do nothing, that's how much your rent, your food, your everything costs. That's not going on holiday. That's not buying an expensive item. That's just day-to-day -day living. Yeah, if it costs you 50 quid just to stand still, if you don't make 50 quid a day, then it's you're losing money. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and there yeah. are plenty of people that would begrudge that. I'll never forget, there was, a, there was a thing years ago, there was a theater thing, and a guy wanted some fish for a thing, and he wanted to sculpt this fish. And I said, couldn't we just buy a fish? Because if we buy the fish that you want, and mold that we because you still got to make a mold right so right. if we got to sculpt it it takes longer so if we just buy a fish that's the right shape and size if such a thing you see exists let's buy that fish and then mold it and the guy was like yeah but that costs like 20 quid i'm like how much do you think it's going to cost to sculpt it's like, so it was just like that it is cheaper to sculpt it if you literally don't value your time at all if you don't put a dollar value in your time at all then and yes sadly, it's cheaper a lot of people don't forget forget that part of the equation and that's why we were saying like, but it costs you money to do nothing. It costs you money to stand still and do nothing. If you're standing in a building that's paid for and you're nourished by food that you've paid for and you're heated or cooled by electricity that you've paid for, that costs money. So it's like <laughs> if, if it costs you, you know, 50 quid a day, I don't know, off the top of my head to stand still and do nothing, on what business do you think you're going to charge less than 50 pounds a day to work because you're not making any money so um so yeah so it's funny it's that not to say it. you won't you won't do some jobs for a significant discount because it's something that really floats your boat or you yes. owe somebody, or you owe somebody a favor but that's that shouldn't be status quo no because obviously there are the benefits like you say you may get you i i've worked for nothing for you know for people that are friends or I'm trying to help out with stuff, but it comes back in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just like, like, you know, you, you will do something for somebody and then, you know, because they are good people. Because you want to learn, because you want to learn a new skill. And, but yeah, it's, it's worth, worth considering that, uh, you know, if you're not valuing your time in any financial sense, you must at least understand that your time is costing you something to somebody somewhere. So if you've just mm -hmm. forgotten that and decided not to charge for it, that doesn't mean it's not costing you. You just haven't accounted for it. <laughs> but um, but anyway, so that's uh, that that that'll be something we we dig around in the article, which we will will uh, will get stuck into. So basically, what I'm saying is, if you listen to this and you know somebody else is into effects, please let them know. Mm -hmm. Nice one, Todd. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Stu. It's always a pleasure to catch up with my bud. Oh, it's almost it's almost time for a refill. Yeah, I think so too. And then I'm going to watch some Columbo. <laughs> That's Donna's favorite show. Fantastic. She loves Columbo. Uh, one more thing, sir. Perfect. <laughs> I'm going to put a fart on the end of that. <laughs> 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 Cheers, man. Cheers.